millions of people every day are reaping the health benefits of using cannabis oil, also known as CBD. This new product derived from hemp has fascinated doctors and scientists around the world for its powerful effects on the human body. If you are in need of alternative methods for health empowerment, please visit www.naturalhempoil.com. That's naturalhempoil.com. CBD is now legal in over 40 states, and our products are non-psychoactive and contain less than 0.3% THC levels. We also offer products for household pets. Naturalhempoil.com does not claim to treat cancer, PTSD, epilepsy, anxiety, insomnia, joint pain, eczema, or any chronic condition that you may have been diagnosed with. Please consult with a doctor before you take CBD. Results may vary, so give our natural CBD a try at www.naturalhempoil.com. That's naturalhempoil.com. Visit naturalhempoil.com. That's naturalhempoil.com. Energy bills are rising at a historic rate, and there's no end in sight. Talk to enough people, and you'll soon realize nearly everyone's shocked at their recent electricity bills. Some studies reveal energy costs have skyrocketed by as high as 60% in as little as two years. That's why tens of thousands are installing this magical little device from SavePowerBills.com to help slash their energy bills. This sophisticated gadget stabilizes electrical currents, reduces dirty electricity, and helps protect your appliances and electronics. Simply plug it into your home wall outlet to help lower energy consumption and ultimately help reduce your power bills every month. Countless five-star reviews back up the notion that this device is one of the most efficient ways to save money while beating the greedy power companies. But there's more. If you order now, you'll also receive 65% off, fast shipping within the USA, hassle-free returns, and last but not least, a 60-day satisfaction guarantee. Just go to SavePowerBills.com to take advantage of this limited-time deal before they sell out. Once again, that's SavePowerBills.com. Violent crime across the U.S. has skyrocketed. Just recently, a politician was carjacked by three armed attackers outside his home in Washington, D.C. This comes several months after another politician was assaulted in the elevator of her building. Between mass shootings, kidnappings, burglaries, and carjackings, it's never been more vital to learn how to protect yourself. This is why tens of thousands are choosing the Fighter Flare Flashlight. The Fighter Flare Flashlight has awed people with a wonderful design and massive light output. On top of an ultra-bright 800-lumen light, it boasts powerful strobe lighting modes for self-defense, a glass breaking hammer, a built-in power bank, solar-powered recharging, rope cutter, siren, and much more. Countless five-star reviews back up the notion that this flashlight is the latest and greatest in the EDC market. But there's more. If you place your order for the Fighter Flare flashlight now, you'll also receive 66% off, free express shipping, and last but not least, a 100% lifetime guaranteed replacement. Simply go to www.fighterflare.com to take advantage of this limited-time deal before they sell out. www.fighterflare.com. Order now. Something wicked is coming this way, and only fools are ignoring the signs. So it's time you became a financial prepper like thousands of others. Gold can travel anywhere. It's international. It's its own currency. Allocate to gold now, the timeless safe haven asset. Open an IRA with noble gold investments to physically hold coins and bars and let real, tangible gold, not just paper, save your portfolio as the economy burns again. Right now, Noble Gold Investments offers a free 3-ounce silver American virtue coin with every qualified IRA. Just use the promo code GOLD to claim your free coin and secure your family's financial future. 
future. Go to noblegoldinvestments.com. Now, noblegoldinvestments.com. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Investing in precious metals, including gold, involves risks. Consult with your tax attorney or financial professional before making an investment decision. What's up? <clears throat> Excuse me. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Uh, we were scheduled to start the hearing today at 11 o'clock, but it appears that the live stream is already up. Uh, we're It's up over 30 minutes early. So I'm firing this thing up, man. Somebody said there was already witnesses on the stand, but it doesn't appear that's the case. The judge isn't even in his seat. <laughs> but I just want to make sure we get broadcasting and we can get this thing. Uh, we don't we don't miss a second. Man, today is another historic day, ladies and gentlemen. I, I again, have never been more excited. Uh, yesterday was an absolute massacre. On behalf of Kerry Lake, Kerry Lake, attorney Kurt Olson and Brian Blem wiped the frickin' floor. And I, I truly mean that, guys. I have no black pills. <laughs> we had Stephen Richard, county recorder, admit that they did not maintain chain of custody on election day drop-offs, uh, which, which accounts for about 292,000 ballots. We had witnesses who testified to ballots being injected into the system at Runbeck. Um, the estimate was around 50 ballots, and they tried to downplay this. But remember, that was only one witness. The real number is completely unknown, and the county didn't even deny it. <clears throat> they tried to say, oh, well, you know, ballot harvesting's legal, but <laughs> the problem is, that that argument doesn't hold up whatsoever because Runbeck is not a legal authorized drop box. So every single ballot inserted at Runbeck was 100% illegal. Okay? Now, <clears throat> the interesting thing here is we had an estimate that was put out there by Stephen Richard. Um and it was it was on election day. And Stephen Richer estimated that there was 275,000 election day drop-off ballots. He tweeted this out. Um, <clears throat> however, two days later, the reported numbers was 292,000. So somehow, 17,000 ballots or so mysteriously appeared. And this was after they went to run back. So Kerry Lake's attorneys were trying to make the argument that well, I mean, where did these ballots come from? It, it could have been people inserting ballots at Runbeck to the tune of 17,000. And we have no way of knowing because there was no chain of custody. Now, the county tried to say, well, that was just an estimate. But we had witness testify that the ballots were weighed. OK, and that's a precise way of counting paper. And when they weighed, they, they weighed in at 275,000. So there's no way that was off by 17,000 votes. And it's interesting that Kerry Lake apparently lost by 17,117 votes. Interesting, right? All right. I had a lot more to say, but the judge has taken his seat. So we're going to put this up, and I am going to step out. This beginning with plaintiff. Please. Morning, Your Honor. Kurt Olson for the plaintiff. Morning. Good morning, Your Honor. Brian Blem on behalf of the plaintiff. Thank you. Good morning, Your Honor. Abba Khan on behalf of Governor-elect Hobbs, along with my colleague, Lolly Maduri. Good morning, Your Honor. Thomas Liddy on behalf of Maricopa County Recorder Stephen Richard and Maricopa County Board of Supervisors. 
and in the courtroom with us, my colleagues, Emily Crager from the Burgess Law Group, Karen Hartman-Tayez. Thank you much. Good morning, Mr. Rooney. Good morning, Your Honor. Andy Gayano with Coppersmith Brockelman on behalf of Secretary Hobbs and her official community. Uh, Bo Duell will also be joining us shortly. She's down the hall in another uh, hearing in another election contest, but she will be in the courtroom shortly. Thank you. Good morning, Mr. Gayano. Very well. Apologize, we've got a momentary technical issue with Teams just to make sure everything's functioning. <laughs> All right, well, if we got an extra, if we got a technical difficulty here, then I'm just going to keep rolling. So yesterday, uh, I, I want to say this: we had the expert testimony of Clay Parikh, and it was absolutely phenomenal. Okay, before Clay Parikh took the stand, we had the Maricopa County. Co-elections director's testimony, and he said under oath that a 19-inch ballot design did not exist, and if it existed, that would be a failure of the process under frickin' oath. Then we find out that Kerry Lake's ballot inspection, uh, Clay Parikh determined that 48 out of 113 ballots that he reviewed were uh, 20-inch ballots with 19-inch ballot images. And this is the reason ballots were rejected on election day. Okay. He said there's only two ways that this could happen. One way would be changing the printer settings and you would have to do this at the admin level, meaning there's no way it happened by accident. You would have to do it at the admin level and override the pre-programmed 20 inch ballot image. The other way is it was done by the elections director that designed the ballot. This was no human error whatsoever. The county actually tried to say it could have been people clicking the shrink to fit button, <laughs> but Clay Preak fired back and said, that's not possible. One, because clicking shrink to fit wouldn't change anything if the ballot was actually 20 inches. It would be printed at 20 inches. And two, because the only way to make those changes would be to do it at the admin level. Now, the county made another argument and said, even if the ballots were rejected initially and then duplicated, they were still counted, so there's no harm, no foul. But Kurt Olson pushed back on that and said, absolutely not true. Because when those ballots were duplicated, they could have changed the person's original votes. And so so after he said that, I, I developed a little theory here. And I put this on Telegram, and it's been shared a lot, a lot of times. Check this out. Here's what I think that they did. They ran... Uh, they, they manipulated the settings so that when the 19-inch ballots were fed through the tabulators, they were rejected because that extra inch on the end tells the tabulator that there's a paper jam. So the ballots are rejected. The 19-inch ballots can't be accepted by the machine no matter how many times you run them through. And what this does is it forces election workers to then have to duplicate the votes onto a new ballot. And that's the opportunity for them to change the person's selections when they're duplicating the new ballot. Now, 
they wouldn't be able to get away with this if they followed the law. Because per Arizona statute, the original ballot and duplicate are supposed to be physically connected to each other and marked with a serial number. So that you can, you know, go back and make sure that the voter selections on the original ballot match the duplicate. However, Maricopa County deliberately did not follow the proper process. So the original and duplicate cannot be traced back to one another. And that's and so if they change votes, we can't identify that. And by the way, the same thing happened in 2020. The auditors found that duplicates could not be traced back to the originals because the serial numbers, the the law was not followed. So the county trying to say that these ballots were still counted and therefore no harm, no foul, is a dead argument. All right. So it looks like we fixed the technical issue. And I'm going to go ahead and unmute. Today's going to be interesting. We're going to have the expert testimony of Richard Barris, the pollster, who's going to break down statistically, mathematically, and scientifically how many people were actually disenfranchised due to the printer breakdowns. Subject cross-examination, this would be cumulative. And I believe I gave you the option of having his report at the time or having him testify and, 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 with his testimony, also admitting the affidavits of the other court observers under 807. And I thought we, uh, I understood that you elected to proceed with the supporting affidavits and um, Mr. Sonaclar's testimony. With that understanding, Your Honor, we withdraw. Okay. All right. Before you even get going on uh, your position, let me just tell you again I am noting for the record the defendant's continuing objection to the admission of these affidavits uh, that I've entered under 807 based upon the stated written position of each of the defendants under the 807 notice and its response. Um, and as Mr. Gayona noted yesterday in court, the continuing objection to the questioning based upon those affidavits. Is there anything further that you want to add as a matter of record, Ms. Connor? No, thank you, Your Honor. Subject uh, to that continuing objection, I think we agree that 53, 54, 76 would be in, and 52 is out. 54 contains the Bovey objection. Oh, out. sorry. Based on what the Your Honor just said, apparently a 54, I think Your Honor just ruled not only that 52, which is Mr. Sonnefler's declaration, should be excluded, but also 54, which is the roving report let me look at it i don't know if your honor um, intended for that to come in or not we we Again, subject to the same objections that we've written about, we have no real dispute about 53, 54, and 76. When I'm, I'm pulling up Exhibit 54, I see that to be the summary listing A1 through A220 and the ad, ad affidavits that support that. And that's precisely what I was having admitted. 
Yes, Your Honor. And that's fine. That's fine by defendants. Very well. Then exhibits 53, 54, and 76 are admitted over the defendant's objection, as I've stated on the record. So I got it correct. Yes, Your Honor. Yes, Your Honor. Okay. With that matter of housekeeping out of the way, I think we're ready to proceed. Mr. Your Honor, uh, with leave of court, um, I would ask that uh, I, I just take a couple of minutes of your time this morning to address an issue yesterday. Uh, and, and, and I'm going to ask you, Your Honor, that you not take this out of our limited time. And one of the reasons for my request, Your Honor, is A, to clarify the record before this court to get an exhibit admitted that I believe was wrong, wrongfully objected to. And to uh, ask for some of our time spent um, fighting objections to that uh, exhibit, Your Honor. And there were certain representations made in the court yesterday. Your Honor, and uh, if I may. Please. May I uh, use the elbow, please? And this is with respect to... uh, Miss Honey's exhibit, the voicemail. Got it. And I'm putting something on the Elmo. Who was that? Excuse me, Your Honor. What number was it? Did you have a placeholder? So oh. Was it 74? I believe it was somewhere in that area, Your Honor. But uh, anyway, I just want It's it's. I've got that bent. I need to, to focus on what exhibit. So it's actually you had a placeholder for number 74, and I presume you're going to explain to me a little bit more about that process. Yes, Your Honor. Go ahead. Am I right about it, 74? Uh, yes. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Go ahead. I'm sorry, Mr. Blum. Now, certain vows were made to this court by defense counsel yesterday. Okay. They have vowed well, wait. Wait, that nobody by the name of Betty works in the Department of Elections. What I've placed on the Elmo, Your Honor, is a copy of a business card for Betty Gallanter. Mm-hmm. Betty Gallanter is not just some low-level employee. Right. Right. Got it. She is the voter outreach manager. The voter outreach manager, Your Honor. Wait, if this business, I'm explaining the context of this business card. I made representations to this court, Your Honor, yesterday. And when when my client and I spoke, not my client, my witness, I'm sorry. My witness and I spoke yesterday. I'm sorry to interrupt, but to save you some time, I thought yesterday I ruled that you could play it in court and then I would address exactly what you're talking about. If the exhibit. I want to clarify, Your Honor, that it was admitted because I don't believe that it was admitted. Well, he admitted it's got to be in some format that I can put it into the record. And you told me that you tried and after your best efforts, you could not upload it into the clerk of the court system. I accepted that. So. How would you have me admit it? May I have a CD-ROM brought down to the court? Let me. I'm going to be very upfront with you about my hesitation and the look on my face. Mm-hmm. 
And the county has spent millions of dollars on its computer system. I do not want to be the one to go to the presiding judge and explain why I put something into the county system. Understood, Your Honor. With, with that, Your Honor, um, I can go to Costco or some store and buy a standalone tape player. I can record that audio onto that, and we can admit the entire tape player as an exhibit. No, wait. And I, I don't need the plug for Costco either. Hold on just a second. <laughs> but in USB port, it's if they show me the container. Okay, I've got a resolution for you. Here's here's the way it works, according to the clerk's office. You can do, I don't care where you buy your player. You can play the recording in open court. To mark it and have it part of the record, you're going to have to, I'm told, submit it as a physical exhibit that's actually played. In other words, if you have have the recording, and I'm a little hesitant here because the, the clerk of the court is a separate entity from me. And so I'm trying to meld these two. As long as there's something that shows that it's, if you, you're an officer of the court, if you give me the package that shows this is where this came from. In other words, I bought a clean new thumb drive. Put and you're vowing to me. I downloaded this from some type of media that has viral, you know, antivirus software protection on it. I will take that as the physical exhibit. I won't let you plug it into the court system. You take your Costco player and plug it in, and you bear the risk of what happens to your Costco player. And you can play it in court, okay? And and with that, Your Honor, I would say also that uh, uh, it was played on the record yesterday, or it was played in court yesterday. I'm fine with that. Okay. As long as I can get the actual audio admitted as the exhibit. And I will have our technical people do that today. I just ruled. I just told you, okay. if you get me that, I will take it now. Oh, I thought you said play it again in court, Your Honor. If you did it, but here's the thing. Before that physical exhibit gets accepted, the defendants have a right to hear it. I'm, I'm, I'm not as casting aspersions on anybody, but if you take what you're going to give the clerk, plug it in, play it. And they say, yeah, that's exactly what was played in court. Then we've got no problems with foundation then that'll be, I know you don't do, go ahead. I know you don't do placeholders. So what number is this? Yeah, we don't do placeholders. So it'll be exhibit 120. So for the record, it's exhibit 120. We've been discussing not 74, 120, 120. Okay. And I will make that happen today. Your honor. It's your responsibility to make sure it happens. You know, if you, I, 
I anticipate you're going to rest your case today, all right? Yes, but that's going to be contingent upon making sure that you've got all the exhibits in. So for this one exhibit, I will give you um, until we're actually we adjourn the hearing beyond when you rest, because I know you've got you have to jump through these hoops that I just told you. Okay, but you have responsibility to make sure this happens in case I forget, in case something else happens. Okay, this will happen, Your Honor. And the second question I have is we spent a lot of time discussing Betty yesterday. Okay. And this exhibit, this specific exhibit. Okay. And this is an email from me, Your Honor. I avow this is an email from me. Uh, Just tell me. This is an email from me to, I believe, all of the defense counsel sitting up here, Mm -hmm. in which I, again, on behalf of both my client who submitted the Public Records Act request Mm -hmm. and my witness who was on the stand yesterday talking about those documents that she needed mm-hmm. that the county will not produce. This email, Your Honor, specifically talks about Betty. It says Betty Gallanter. How much time are you asking for? I'm asking for at least 15 minutes, Your Honor, that were spent debating about this issue. And, you know, with leave of court, I'd also like to move to admit this email as an exhibit. This email is highly relevant, Your Honor, because it does discuss the chain of custody documents that are that, that were discussed yesterday and those very documents, Your Honor, that Maricopa County says they have but will not give to anybody. They have not given to anybody. Now we're beyond the scope of the exhibit that you're talking about. If you're talking about you want time back focused on the discussion we had about chain of custody and how to do it without arguing, I think we have the, we have some additional time. I've made time. This, this time we're doing right now. This is time that I made by making you come in earlier. Okay. I didn't take this into account. So this is on me. Okay. So I have no problem giving you 15 minutes. Thank you. Okay. And I'm not, but I'm not going to admit the email and go into all of that. I'm giving you the 15 minutes because I think the email goes well beyond this. And I think I'm going to invest more than 15 minutes of my time straightening out what's relevant and what's not relevant. So I'm going to give you the 15 minutes and not go into that. Boom. That's a big win, guys. They wasted a lot of time trying to get that evidence into the record yesterday. That's a big win. Court some time because I'm not going to argue for the nine minutes and 22 seconds that should be allocated. So I'm not going to mention that. But what I will mention, and we can check the record, is that the question was asked about a Betty who works in the Maricopa County Public Records Department. Hmm. And there is no Betty who works in the Maricopa County Public Records Department. That's the avowal that I made. That goes directly to my integrity, Your Honor. So I have to put that on the record. And secondly, avowals were made by counsel, that his client knew Betty personally. And then he changed and said, no, his witness knew Betty personally. And then she testified that, no, she didn't. I just want that on the record, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you. Let me just explain something to you. I I listened carefully to that testimony, and I understood that Mr. Blum's distracted. 
some of the things Mr. Blem told me weren't true. Some of the things Mr. Liddy told me weren't, you know, exactly what Mr. What Mr. Blem said. I'm not saying you didn't say what you didn't, what you said isn't true. I'm saying that in terms of the representations that went back and forth, I didn't take this as being there was, there was trying to be instructive to me to have an idea or focus of what the exhibit would actually say. I didn't make my rulings based on your reputation, Mr. Liddy, nor Mr. Blem and his representations. I listened to the evidence. And if you, during the testimony, Mr. Blem realized that some of the things he had said were not in line with what the witness said. And so he may not have come out on the record, but I saw it and he acknowledged by body language. Let me, let me just digress just a second here. I've tried to be, um, Respectful, fair, and impartial to both sides throughout all of this. And I have the highest regard for the attorneys involved in the case on both sides and the preservation of the evidence. And I feel it's been very professional and it's been very well done. So I just encourage you. I know this is hotly contested and it hasn't. um, Well, I'll leave it at that. I think I rely on your professionalism and, and dignity. And I don't take things to be uh, personal attacks. Um, I've already given you my view of each of you. All right. So let's leave this and proceed. I think you've got 15 minutes back. Mr. Blem, I didn't go into anything further. I think that should cover everything. And I just want to be clear on it. You, Twice in court, it was played, the tape, a woman named Betty who works for Maricopa County said, we'll get the documents to you when we get them. Wait, wait, wait. I don't want you to rehash the testimony. Okay. Okay. Enough, because I, I, I've tried to take very good notes, and I've paid attention. Thank you, Ron. So, thank you. Okay. Plaintiff, do you have a witness that you'd like to call? Uh, yes, Your Honor. We call Rich Ferris. This is going to be good. Richard Barris, the Epic Times pollster. He's going to give statistical mathematical data of the Barris, number you'll of stand in front of my clerk, voters. sir. Raise your right arm. She will swear you in. This is going to be very crucial. Guys, real quick, smash that rumble button and subscribe. Good morning, Mr. Barris. Would you please state your full name for the record? Good morning, Mr. Olson. Richard D. Barris. And where where do you work currently? For about over six years, I'm the director of Big Data Poll. Uh, Before that, I worked in election forecasting. I modeled uh, the election forecast model for People's Funded Daily. Did that for... From 2014 till 2018. Can you briefly go through your uh, qualifications and experience in conducting uh, exit polling? Yeah. And and describe what exit polling is. Yeah, I I studied uh, political science, but uh, for, you know, since 2014, I've been conducting exit polling and studying. uh, There's no no secret that the industry's had problems, so... I largely focused on uh, response biases and uh, the we the exit poll that we uh, conducted in Arizona, for instance, is modeled very much off of the vote cast, which is done by the Associated Press now. 
Okay. How long have you been doing exit polling? Exit polling particularly is for about a little over six years. Okay. And did you always do that with respect to the company called the People's Pundit? Uh, we do pre-election polling as well. Uh, we do what is called what we call electorate mapping. We forecast uh, turnout models. Uh, we come up with different ranges of modeling. And we also uh, have a decision desk for election night where we set thresholds for candidates, whether they can win or lose an election, for instance. Okay. Uh, do you do any type of a survey work for other companies uh, outside of exit polling in elections? Yeah, absolutely. We conduct voir dire research for uh, clients, for legal firms uh, to determine juries, the profiles of jurors for that may or be uh, favorable or unfavorable to a to a particular client. We do market research. We do branding. Uh, it's a wide scope, uh, but there's no doubt. We I would say the vast majority of our work is in politics. Okay. And we conducted media polling as well, just for the record. What type of methodology do you employ in conducting an exit poll for an election? So the methodology that we employ now, because exit polling has changed over the years, is the methodology that is now used by the Associated Press, uh, which has broken away from traditional exit polling in recent years, uh, and uh, it, it will be the future. Okay. What is the difference between uh, a turnout model and exit polling? So turnout modeling and that that's a great question. Turnout modeling, we only have uh, certain variables that we could look at with turnout modeling. For instance, historical turnout population increases, uh, but that is limited. So the difference between exit polling and just, you know, f- turnout modeling in general is that we're able to talk to people to see whether or not um, there's something that would have changed. For instance, in regular turnout modeling that I would looked at in the Maricopa County 2022 election plan, um, the, they, they gave two different variants. There's always variances to models, but they gave two different plans. If they would have used those plans in 2018, uh, they likely would have understated turnout because there would have been no historical basis for turnout to have been as high as it was in the 2018 midterm election. When you say they gave two different, what are you referring to? So if you look at, I believe, page 11 in the election 2022 Maricopa election plan, you'll see that they are providing two different turnout models. One is a lower turnout model. The other is a higher turnout model. And they're using uh, various variables that they're putting into this turnout rates. They're averaging certain cycles over uh, you know, the last uh, several decades. Uh, but again, they're, that they're, I, I'd applaud them for that work. They did a good job, but it's limited because – the turnout was very, very low in some of those elections. So you would never see a high turnout election coming if you didn't have long term interviews with with voters on the ground. Um, for the record, I, I believe the uh, you're referring to Exhibit 2. It is Exhibit 2. Exactly. Yes. And that's Defendant's Exhibit 2. What type what are the uh, the factors that you take into account with respect to turnout modeling? Maricopa is a great example of this. It's a, it, it really is because it's had an enormous amount of population growth. And when we look at voter records, we, of course, ask them their vote history. Did you vote in 2020? Did you vote in 2018? But that will be verified against the voter file. And a lot of new movers that have come to Maricopa County have robust vote records. So a pollster may not know them as a, a long-term voter in a state, 
um, unless they check those records. Maybe when they move from New York, as so many have done, or California or Illinois. And when we look at those records, we'll see that they, in fact, are high propensity voters. So these are voters that a lot of people can miss on what are called voter screens. That's what you're referring to. We screen these voters. And for an exit poll, we would have called them first and we would have asked them to participate in that exit poll. And we would have checked their vote history, whether or not they're high propensity voters or not. We would put them through traditional screens. And if they uh, agreed to take the exit poll, we would tell them to to uh, re-interview and take it, and we would contact them and complete the questionnaire as they cast their vote, which I think is very important in this case. So when you're... Con- oh, there's the next question. You talk fast. Sorry, Your Honor, I do. I know. I'll slow it down. I talk softly. No one's perfect. All I'm pointing this out for is for the benefit of my court reporter, she has to take this down. And so... If you wait, wait for the question to be completely asked, and then I will make whoever asks you the next question wait until you've answered. So you're not you're not rushed. You'll get to say what you need to say, but just for her sake, just understood. You're thank you. So when you conduct an exit poll, are you saying that you identify prior to the election participants and voters who you think are going to? go out and vote and therefore fill out the exit poll questionnaire? Yes, that's correct. And in identifying those voters, do you review their voter history? Yes, we do. And do you interview those voters or survey them? Yes, we do. And uh, we'll we'll also check to see, uh, sometimes people just don't tell the truth. So uh, we will check those voter records, what they're they're self-reporting to us against what is on their voter file. And were you hired by uh, the plaintiff prior to the election? In fact, we were not hired by the plaintiff to conduct this exit poll. Okay. So you created this exit poll based on a turnout model that included going through uh, and identifying uh, voters through their voter history and other factors? Yes, that's correct. Absolutely. Pop- um, well, let me just leave it there for now. Okay. So, and you created a turnout model prior to the election, correct? Yes. And then in terms of the exit polling, those voters who agreed to participate as, and they were part of your turnout model would fill out a questionnaire. Yes. And what kinds of questions would that questionnaire ask? So, and, and some of them did this over a duration of time. So an interview may not be complete immediately. There are different ways uh, in Maricopa County and Arizona as there are in many states to vote. So we will identify after screening them and qualifying them as a likely voter. We will identify what method they intend to vote by. Do they intend to cast a vote by mail and mail it in early? Do they intend to drop it off at a drop box? Do they intend to vote in person? And at that point, uh, if they are in-person voters or if they have not cast that ballot or mailed it in and they intend to drop it in the drop box, they are told not to. And they won't uh, finish the questionnaire until or finish their interview. There are different ways they can take it uh, until they actually cast that vote. And in terms of the number of participants in this exit poll that you created for the 2022 general election, was that for Arizona or for Maricopa County or was it national? 
It was for uh, Arizona, although we did other states. We, we polled other states as well. But it was for Arizona, uh, with Maricopa being such a large share of the vote in Arizona, it made up a substantial portion of the sample. So roughly uh, a little over 1,300 people we spoke to statewide in Arizona, and about 813 of them were residents and voters in Maricopa County. And did you perform an analysis to determine whether or not that was a uh, statistically reliable sample? Sure. So we can actually see the share of the voting population that is that comes from Maricopa County. Uh, it doesn't mean it will make up that share of the vote on, you know, when all the votes are counted and all is said and done. But it's a great place to start. And as as a modeler, as a pollster, anybody who does this, we have to set ranges for where we think uh, that these numbers are going to fall. Was the uh, sample that you uh chose and obtained participation from in your exit polling statistically significant in your opinion yes and what do you base that opinion on well we calculate sampling errors of course like everybody else uh we have a big data poll we have certain minimum standards uh and minimum populations or sample sizes and, you know, I could go into the principles of random sample, but ultimately the more you speak, it would be ideal if you could speak to the entire population, if you're polling an entire population, but it's not possible. So the larger sample you speak to of a target population, the, the, the lower the sampling error is going to be. Uh, so anything, uh, every pollster is different, but we have minimum sample sizes that we employ by state, by population, whatever it may be, and it is statistically significant. How would you characterize your methodology and the statistical uh, reliability of the uh, turnout model and the exit poll that you conducted in Arizona for the 2022 general election? We use the same methodology for the exit poll that we conducted in Arizona that we have used uh, for six years, even before the Associated Press moved to this methodology. In over six years, uh, since we began releasing public polling on a steady basis in 2016, we have not inaccurately predicted the winner outside of a sampling error in a single poll, not one. So everybody gets it wrong sometimes, but I'm very proud of the record that we've amassed a big data poll. Everybody gets it wrong. But if you get it wrong outside the sampling error routinely, uh, then there's a problem with your methodology. So everyone is constantly refining what they're doing, and the world changes. So the ways you can contact voters are always going to change with it. But we feel we've done a good job evolving. You said that you had never inaccurately predicted within the sampling Not error? Not outside of the sampling error. So, for instance, you could predict the winner of a presidential election is going to be candidate A by a point. Maybe he loses by two points or a point and a half, but your sampling error is three and a half percent. So, or you know, you're you're within the sampling error at that point. Okay. During the uh, 2022 general election in Arizona, did you make any changes to your exit poll questions? We did on the day of election. And what change was that? And just to, for, for the record, the reason we added this question is because of the interactions we had during the con- conducting the exit poll. Uh, shortly after interactions with who voters, people, participants of the exit poll. Uh, dur- shortly after uh, polls opened on election day, several of the participants who had previously agreed to take the exit poll but indicated that they would vote on election day. 
were trying to vote before work. And when they went to go cast their ballot, the lines were long. So some of them would tell us, we'll come back after work uh, and we'll see if we can do it. Uh, some others, you know, com- complained, uh, you know, that they couldn't wait online. So they had to go pick up a kid or something, you know, life, really. Um, so we, in fact, added a question that uh, it was not designed to see how many voters may have been suppressed. In fact, it was designed to try to point people in a direction to a polling station where they could vote. So uh, we added a question that basically said, did you have any issues or run in any complications while attempting to vote, such as tabulators rejecting ballots or running out of print, uh, running out of paper when you know at the polling station? And we took this from issues that voters were telling us. We didn't make this up. We took this from issues that they we heard directly from. Them. And, and was this change in terms of the questions to add this question? Was that done? Uh, in, in connection with any anticipated litigation that might arise out of this election? Well, the goal was to attempt to tell the participants where they could go vote. And we were taking lists of polling places. Those who were able to successfully cast a ballot, where were they able to do so? Okay. Now, you did a report for use in this uh, election challenge, correct? We did. And what was your conclusion as to the number of uh, likely voters that uh, were suppressed from turnout as a result of the chaos on Election Day? Well, like anything else, uh, I try to set a range because we have sampling errors and we have variances. So I have to feel you know, comfortable with the estimates that we're looking at. And for we put a couple, I put a couple of things into this. First, I'm looking to see whether or not um, there's still a substantial amount of voters out there that historically we could say we could support with historical data that they could have turned out meaning would this be out of the range of normal if we were missing such a large chunk of voters or can we uh can we look at the numbers and, and have expected it the bottom line here is that those who said they would cast their vote by mail or drop their ballot off by mail completed their questionnaire at a 93 percent rate there are always going to be people who tell you that they're going to they're going to participate in your poll, but then don't, especially in exit polls. The rate for election day voters were was only seventy two percent. So that doesn't. I, I can tell you that has never happened to me before ever. And why is that significant? It's significant because you know, looking at you know, we can go through it a lot more in depth. But looking at all the totality of it, there's no explanation for why these voters simply did not come back. They didn't cast their ballot. There's always going to be a difference. But the difference here is almost 20 points. It's roughly 20 percentage points. It's a, it's a, a significant finding. It, it, and I can only, like, in my professional opinion, I've done many, many of these exit polls. These people didn't complete this questionnaire because they didn't vote. They didn't get to vote. And I don't know why anybody would agree to participate in an exit poll and then not you know, show up in, in such large, there's, why would they not vote and then complete the interview? This just doesn't happen. What was, what was the, the range of, of voters lost, uh, on election day? So if we look at that 20%, uh, you know, the, 
admittedly very large. Could we have expected the election day electorate itself, roughly 250,000 election day voters? Could we have expected that to expand by another 20 percent? Uh, that's you know, that that's that's a lot. But there are means. Could we expect it to expand by 10 percent? Could turnout for election day have been 10 percent higher, 15 percent higher? Look at the number of votes that would mean 10 percent would be 25,000 votes. You know, would, did that fall within our modeling? Sure, it fell within the modeling of the 2020 election plan from Maricopa County. What about 15%? If turnout increased on election day by 15%, we'd be looking at almost 40,000 votes roughly. Something like that? Absolutely could have. Talking a little fast. Sorry. Uh, so what was the expected range that you determined of vote voters who were disenfranchised as a result of the election day chaos? Between 25,000 to 40,000. And again, there's always going to be some variance there. Okay. And what of the 25 to 40,000, what was the net effect on Republican voters? This is important. And it, you can only understand that by understanding the difference in vote preference by vote method. If you showed up on election day, you were far more likely to be a straight ticket Republican than if you cast a ballot by mail. The same is also true if you were, for instance, a Democratic voter. If you voted on election day, you were far more likely to cross over and vote for another party. And the same is true of Republicans. If they voted by mail, they were far more likely to vote, for instance, for um, the Democratic candidate, Katie Hobbs. So you have to understand that when you're looking at it, uh, it, it's not a it's not as significant of a number as uh, for disenfranchised voters as you may think. So the election day margin for uh, Miss Lake was huge in the areas where we saw these depressions. And by huge, it was not uncommon for her to win 75, 76 percent of the vote there. It's because she was also winning. Uh, large numbers of crossover voters. Uh, so, you know, when we're looking at who may have been disenfranchised, the, the mail-in vote is in. We can only be talking about election day voters at this point. Uh, so it, it, one, one more, well, we call them dumps, but one more batch of tabulated votes in Maricopa County really could have done it. Well, what do you recall the range that you uh, concluded in your report as to the number of Republican voters that were suppressed from coming out on election day as a result of the chaos? Well, it's again, I, I really want to caution anybody for thinking about this just as Republicans, because, uh, you know, the, the vote share is so large where the Republicans were absolutely disproportionately impacted by this. And we're talking about a net advantage uh, that absolutely puts the margin in doubt. So we're we're looking if it was 25 to roughly 40,000 votes, Mr. Olson, the margin that we saw in these areas puts this election within <laughs> a few votes either way. It really does. Would it refresh your recollection if we brought your report to know the number of voters, that Republican voters that you determined were uh, suppressed as a result of the election? Percentages, we could absolutely do. No, sir. I'm asking on the, you came up in your report with an expected range of suppressed Republican voters. Do you recall that range? Well, the range was, yes. The range was a low of 25,000 to a high of 40,000. Yes. Was that overall voters or Republican voters? That's just over, though, that's overall votes that would have netted, uh, what I did in the report, uh, Mr. Olson was explain how the net change in the vote 
would have been impacted. What was that figure? Well, that figure was between 2000. uh, It would have ranged uh, between um, 2000 hold uh, for the current leader to uh, roughly 4000 for uh, Miss Lake. Do you recall a range of 15,000 to 29,000 in your report? Oh, well, yeah, yes, yes. Uh, that's. Objection, Your Honor. I have an objection to that question. I understand, though, what he's saying. Sure. Thank you. Counsel is leading the witness in testifying. It is leading. Um, if you would like to have him refresh his recollection, that'd be fine with the report, but I don't want to, um, it's not in evidence, put it that way. Yes, Your Honor. Call up exhibit. Oof, that's <clears throat> not a large enough margin to swing the election there that Richard Barris just said. So that's actually different than what they had in their original complaint. Exhibit 48. Not, not, Which not exhibit is it, Mr. Holmes? Exhibit 48, Your Honor. In the original complaint, the margin um, of voter disenfranchisement was like... Your Honor, I think counsel wants to use that to refresh the witness's recollection, but the witness hasn't actually said he needs that or said that he doesn't. It was like 30,000. Now he dropped down to two to 4,000. I was drawing that off of. So if she wants you to ask him the question, if it would refresh his recollection or not before he's allowed to refer to his report... Sorry, may I clarify what I was saying? He um he actually testified to the numbers, so he doesn't need his recollection reflected, refreshed. I, I think I'm entitled to ask the question, Your Honor. You may. Yeah. Would it refresh your recollection uh, in terms of some of these numbers at the uh, to look at your report? No, I I think this is a matter of nomenclature. We're just talking in different terms where you're saying Republican votes and I'm referring to it as the net change. So I'm not thinking about this as the register, the registration of that voter. I'm thinking about how it would impact the margin of the governor's race. So the net gain for the Republican candidate, what would the net gain be is the margin is the number you're referring to. So, yes, it would be significant enough to change the leader of the race. It would. And you're basing that on the net difference between the candidates of 17,000 yes. plus votes? That's correct, sir. Yes. So in your opinion, the uh, the suppression of Republican voters that you saw on Election Day based on your uh, exit polling and survey exceeded or would have exceeded the margin between the two candidates of 17,000 plus just votes? Just a second. When's, when the... When the lawyers stand up, it usually means there's an objection coming. Yes, Your Honor. Objection, Your Honor. Uh, counsel is again leading the witness and mischaracterized his testimony about voter suppression. Uh, okay. Let's stick with leading. It was leading. You can ask him for his opinion. Mr. Barris, what is your opinion with respect to the effect of the voter suppression as a result of election day chaos based on your survey exit polling and experience in connection with this race where the margin between the two candidates is a little over 17,000 votes. Mr. Olson, in my professional opinion, and some of this is not opinion, we know the vote totals in these areas that we're talking about. We know what the margins were. 
um, in my opinion, in my professional opinion, this did have an impact on the outcome. It definitely impacted the outcome. The only question for me is whether it had the potential to to change the result. And in my opinion, in my professional opinion, I believe it did have the it did have that it was substantial enough to change the leaderboard. It was. When you say change the leaderboard, do you mean that the it would that have Ms. changed would be the ahead outcome right now? Miss Lake would be ahead. Yes. Another rule: person talks at a time because she can only take down one person at a time. So I cut your answer and broke my own. I get you to not speak at the same time. Okay, Your Honor. So, Mr. Bierkorn, can you repeat your answer so my court reporter can get it clearly? In my professional opinion, the amount of Election Day voters that we're talking about here, with the margin, would have changed the outcome of the race. And the number is substantial enough to have changed who the overall winner was in this race. And and are you saying that uh, plaintiff Carrie Lake would have won this race, but for the election day chaos? I have no doubt. I I believe it that strongly. It's my opinion that strongly. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Barrett. Are you done with questioning? Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Cross examination, please. This is really going to come down to cross-examination. How does Richard Barris hold up to the county scrutiny here? Because it appears there was a little c- confusion there. He said twenty-five to 40,000 people were suppressed, but the, the net vote change for the candidates was two to 4,000. And then he said, I think the amount of suppression would have changed the outcome. So a little little confusing there. It's really going to come down to... How does his good morning, hold Mr. Barris? Thank you for being here. Okay. Good morning. Oof. I have been consulted by lawyers about election processes and laws. Have you in an academic study, in an academic setting, ever studied polling? In an academic study? In an academic in setting. An academic setting? Uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, the professor who got me into this said, beware of uh, presidents and pollsters who have PhDs. Uh, they don't make good ones of either. So, no. Have you ever studied uh, long lines uh, in the context of elections? I'm in an sure academic an, setting. I'm not sure that's... Yeah, that's not my purview, and I'm not sure that's a, has any bearing here. But okay. have you ever studied the effect of long lines on turnout? No. Have you ever studied the various factors that can affect election day or any kind of turnout? Of course. In what setting have you? But not in an academic setting. Well, I'll say it again. I make my living in the real world. We, there's a difference between practice and theory, ma'am. There is. So, no, you've never studied no. the effect of. No. Have you ever published any peer review academic articles? No, but I've appeared in numerous outlets after elections. You know, I've, I've, I've been I've written commentary articles for various news organizations. No, it's not academic. But again, in my industry, ac- academia means nothing. 
accuracy matters. People come to me when they want the truth and accurate information. They don't care about theory. So, no, you've never published any kind of academic peer-reviewed article. That's correct to say, yes. We're off to a bad start here, guys. Are you familiar with the New York Times? Yes. Are you familiar with 538? Unfortunately, yes. Okay. Are you aware that 538 aggregates more than 450 different polls for its analyses? I'm a longstanding critic of 538. Yes, I'm very aware of that uh, our adversarial relationship. So you're aware that they look at... I'm a competitor at, to 538. I uh, my I'm sorry, I just want to remind you yeah. what the judge said about... Sure. We, oh, we sure. can't talk over each other because our uh, court reporter is taking everything okay. down. <laughs> so sorry about I, I'll be sure not to speak over you if you could do the same. Stop. Please, just calm down because even when you're both trying to correct this, you're talking over each other. Okay. So take a deep breath. What I'll do is I will give you the answer the question once she's finished. Don't answer the question until you've actually heard it, even if you think you know where it's going. On the other hand, let them answer or you ask the next question and we'll be just fine. Okay. So I'm, I apologize for the testy nature of what I'm telling you, but I'm looking down at my court reporter and she has to take this down and it's a mess. And that's not a technical legal term. Just one person talking at a time. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. So, Mr. Barris, are you aware that 538 aggregates more than 450 polls for its analyses? Yes. Your polling organization, Big Data Poll, is excluded from 538's aggregated polls. Is that right? That is true. Yes. And... Big Data Poll received a grade of F as in a failing grade from 538. Is that right? It is. And can I just... Okay, I'll just let it be more examination after she's done. <clears throat> Briefly. <laughs> and it sounds like you're aware that 538 currently ranks about 500 different pollsters. Is that right? I, you know, I, I honestly, ma'am, I don't know. How many they rank? I I don't pay much attention to them. Any reason to disagree that it's about 500? No, I, I take your word for it. Okay, and are you aware that just 11 of those polling organizations have received an F grade? No. Are you aware that F grades are given to pollsters if their methodology is unreliable, their methods are not transparent, or their results are inaccurate? Um. No, but again, I would just uh, argue that uh, you're you're acting as if they're an authority on polling. They're not. Are you familiar with real clear politics? Yes. Yes, I am. Are you aware that it's been described as a right-leaning media outlet? No, they're not right-leaning. Are you aware that they also aggregate polls? Yes. And big data polls are also not included in real clear politics' aggregation. Is that right? They just at their request, asked for our stuff for submission. So if they go through a review process, we just gave it to them. I've had, uh, stay tuned, I don't know what to say. I mean, we've been under the radar for a while, and um, I suspect that'll change. They just, uh, Real Clear Politics just announced something called the Polling Accountability Initiative because polling has been so horrible, 
and outlets like the one you're describing, Man 538, have uh, used them for narratives and we're losing public trust. So RCP just began this initiative and starting to rank pollsters. I gave them our stuff for their review, and I expect we'll end up within the top three like we are in election recon, right, be- right behind the IBD tip poll. And unlike them, we poll states as well, not just national. So it's actually harder to get a higher grade if you're polling both states and national polling. National polling is easier. State polling is more complicated. Yeah, and I'd like to move to strike that testimony is non-responsive to the question that I asked. I'm not going to strike it. Go ahead and ask further questions if you want to. Okay, so I understand the explanation you just gave, but is it correct that you have not previously been part of the aggregations? Sorry. I love how they're quoting the New York Times. A member of the National Council on Public Polls? Uh, No, but we do follow the transparency initiative that they laid out. And you're not also, it's also not a member of the Association of Public Opinion Researchers? Same, same answer. And just for the, uh, just for the sake, it's only, you know, not a lot of pollsters, probably 70% of them are not. Nobody wants to pay dues. That's not the point of polling and to be part of the clique. And you're also not a part of the Roper Center? No, I, I, I've never contacted them. Okay, I'd like to discuss now the poll that you conducted in this, um, for this election that you just discussed with your council. Just to clarify, how was the poll conducted? Was it phone, written, text? What was the medium that it was conducted under? You could consider it mixed mode, ma'am, uh, because, uh, there are different rates that different voters respond to different modes of collection. So, for instance, a college-educated voter in their middle age would be happy to stay on the phone with you and conduct a live interview for 20 minutes or so. But a steel worker in Pittsburgh or, a, um, for instance, a working-class Hispanic in Maricopa County does not want to do that. So you have to give them different ranges to do it. We do live caller. We do peer-to-peer in this context, again, very much like the Associated Press. They can fill out a questionnaire online if they want, but they are contacted live in all instances. Okay, so some of the interviews were conducted by phone and some were conducted by some kind of written online submission. Well, is they, that right? That is correct. They would be contacted live and then get texted a link. It's called peer-to-peer texting. If they chose to opt in that way uh, for anonymity, they could conduct it like that, yes. Okay, and the poll was conducted between November 1st and November 8th, is that's, that right? That's correct. How many of those polled reported voting on Election Day? Uh, overall, uh, there were about, at the end of the day, uh, about 160-something filled out, if I remember correctly. I, I honestly needed that in front of me because, uh, you know, I conduct a lot of polls, man, you know, honestly. Um, but it, it was shy of what was expected, which was in the range of about 250 to 300 uh, and, and you're referring only to Maricopa County or the entire state, because it was a state-level poll. The 160 estimate you gave, what was that for? The one that uh, Maricopa County. And we do, just to lab, we do believe in oversampling. Uh, again, the larger the sample, the smaller you can reduce error rates for subgroups. Of those who responded from Maricopa, who voted on Election Day, 
Were there respondents from all of the congressional districts that Maricopa covers? That's a great question. Yes. And to make sure I understand correctly, the poll, people who filled out the poll were all people who self-reported as having voted. Is that right? Yes, we would not be. That is correct. We would not be able to verify that until, uh, the, you know, in this case, a county uh, or secretary of state's office. We do use vendors that often give us that information faster. That's correct. Okay, so I think you answered this, but then you didn't do anything to verify whether they had voted or not. At this point, there is, um, you know, there's just the tools there are not at our disposal. You know, I mean, that's, there's no way at this point to confirm whether they, election day records are, are typically the last ones to, to go. But if, if I may, uh, while it's true, we, we didn't talk to people after the fact. Uh, it really very much is like the way the ast- an astronomer observes a planet when they can't see it. It dims the light of the planet as it passes it. There's, it's the same principle where I can observe them by their absence. Okay, so let's talk about the questions that you asked. So I think sort of the key question that's at play here. Um, you asked election day self-reported voters. Quote, did you have any issues or complications when trying to vote in person, such as tabulators rejecting the ballot or voting locations running out of ballots? Is that right? That's correct, ma'am. And based on how many voters said yes to that question, you drew the conclusion that to a reasonable degree of mathematical certainty that turnout depression occurred on Election Day. Is that right? It's not the conclusion is not derived from the the answers to that question. Uh, in in fact, the the number, the percentage of areas affected, polling stations affected, is where it, we we can draw that conclusion from uh, using that question. But the conclusion is uh, uh, of how many or what is the range of uh, group of voters that were depressed or comes from. Uh, the, the modeling itself that we went over, but also the absence of their completion. And this is, while we can't check their vote record now, these are people that do have vote histories. So if I see a woman who's voted every election since 1980, and for some reason she didn't show up this time when she told us, I am certain to vote and I'm going to vote on election day, there is no reason not to believe her. So the conclusion you draw about how many voters, to use your words, yeah. were either suppressed or disenfranchised? That is based on who failed to complete your survey. Not is only that, that correct? No, it's not. That's not only it, it's it's a number of factors. We have historic data here. We have uh, in voting records of the past. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it. There is. I understand in the report. I understand that. But the actual numbers sort of that you're saying that didn't turn out or were suppressed, that is based on how many people didn't complete the survey. In part, 
the exit poll would have projected a higher number. The exit poll would have projected over 50,000 if I took just the word of the people who told us they were going to vote, but then did not show up. I, I, I thought that honestly, that was a little bit hard to support, you know, with um, historical data. So I'm using a mean and that's what anybody else would do when you're, when you're, when you're trying to project. It's what, um, Mr. Jarrett did when his team put together, uh, these models you saw yesterday in court, model one, model two. He's using means. So he's, he's using the averages. It says right on page 11, I'm using the averages of historical turnout. That's what we do. In your projection about how many people would vote, that was based, was that based on any sort of interview with a person? Yes, later in part, absolutely. Uh, so I, I think I asked my question, but let me just make sure that we're speaking about the same thing. Um, your projection about how many people would vote on election day, that is based on how many people told you they would complete your poll, correct? On election day specifically, you're referring to? Or at all? No, I, no. I, I actually, again, I'd, I'd applaud the work I saw on the election plan in Maricopa County. It just has limitations. So we would add those interviews as a variable. Again, I use 2018 as a great example. If you only used historical data, then you would never have saw over 64% turnout in Maricopa County coming because you haven't seen an example like that in a dec in decades. So the reason, for instance, a pre-election pollster would be able to accurately project the outcome of that election is by talking to these voters. And at some point, you have to believe them. And uh, it, you have to, of course, verify and make sure uh, that their vote history checks out. But uh, if you're a pollster and you're interviewing them, you actually are a little bit, you have the advantage. You're able to catch on to new movers, what, for instance. Whereas if you're just looking at a historic turnout model, you're going to you're going to miss it. You're going to fall shy. OK. And the people who actually responded to your poll, they all reported voting, right? Um, who actually responded? That's correct. Yes. Okay, let's dig into that question just a little bit more. So for voters who you saw so, so you you discussed with your council that you added a question to your poll on election day, right? Yes. Okay. So that question, which we've already gone over about sort of facing issues with uh any issues specifically referencing tabulators. Um there's no similar question that was asked to anybody who completed your poll before election day, right? Yes, I'd say that's true. And okay. there's Great. a reason for that. That's fine. So, okay. yes. So if early voters had faced issues, there was no question in your poll that would have captured that response. If early voters had faced issues, we would have added the question. That's what I'm trying to distinguish here. I understand. So yes. they were not asked the question. They were not. That's true. And they okay. were not alerting us of any issues either. Did you ask election day voters outside of Maricopa if they had issues on election day? Yes. Okay. It's not really an accepted practice in the political polling industry to change or add questions partway through a poll, is it? Yes, it is. In a tracking poll, you can change a question every day. 
Um, there's nothing wrong with adding a question on them if you feel that there is a subgroup within the poll that is being uniquely impacted by it. Um, then sure, sure you can. Um, part of the question had a premise in it. Um, one of the issues you gave as an example that a voter could face was a voting location running out of ballots, correct? Yes. You're aware that Maricopa prints ballots on demand, correct? Yes, but Pinal County had an issue uh, in the primary, so we were simply reflecting what what participants of the poll uh, were telling us they've had in the past. That's that's where they came. And again, the entire poll was conducted state that was even asked of other voters statewide. And it's worth noting that only Maricopa voters, only participants in the poll who who uh, vote and reside in Maricopa County responded that they had issues. There were no other voters outside in the state who said, yes, I ran into a problem. Okay, your poll can't tell us how many voters encountered an issue with a tabulator in Maricopa, correct? Election day voters. Um, about it was about 32.7 percent did say they had an issue. Yes, they said they had an issue. Yes. Okay, but your analysis can't tell us how many voters encountered an issue with a tabulator. Correct. That's true. We didn't give them the option to speak to. That's true. Absolutely. And it can't tell us how many voters of a specific party encountered an issue with a tabulator. Correct. Specifically with the tabulator. That's right. We can give the share of each party that had issues. That had some issue on election day. You, you are correct, yes. And no voter in your poll was asked whether they waited in the line on election day. No. So your analysis can't tell us about how many voters encountered a line when they went to vote. Um, no, I think that's fair. And you can't tell us anything about where lines occurred in Maricopa. Well, not lines specifically, just issues being okay. able to cast a ballot, yes. It also can't tell us how long those lines were, should a voter have encountered a line. No. It also can't tell us whether a voter decided not to vote because they encountered a line. That specific question, no. The only uh, way we can, again, infer that is by the absence of their participation and uh, them being the only ones to have an absence of participation. So there is always going to be a percentage of voters who tell you they're going to do your exit poll and then don't do it. Those who voted by mail were significantly less likely to not complete the questionnaire. And they are instructed to complete it at the time they cast their vote. Ninety three percent did if they did not vote by election. Seventy two percent did if, if they if they voted on election and you can't tell us anything about whether long lines occurred in more Republican areas of Maricopa or more Democratic areas of Maricopa, correct? Uh, I I can. I can only speak to general, like the question was worded, general issues. Did you encounter issues? Yes. So, again, the question was, you had asked was, did you have any issues or complications when trying to vote in person, right? Yes. Okay. So this question doesn't allow us to distinguish between voters who encountered a significant issue versus a voter who had some kind of trivial, trivial issue, right? Well, because of the sample size, we, I, we can typically technically do that by, by just the amount of, um, 
the amount of signals is what we would call it. So how, are there areas that are consistently showing up as, as problematic areas? Um, but because it's sample size, we can only look by congressional district. I would not be able to look by vote center specifically. Okay, I understand. I, we can talk about your congressional district analysis, but I just want to clarify. The question doesn't allow us to distinguish between the type of issue that a voter faces. That's true. You're correct about that. And voters who encountered a problem with something other than tabulators could have also reported experiencing an issue, correct? Yes. So, for example, if somebody had an issue with their photo ID, their voter ID, (laughs) their voter ID, that could have been reported as an issue in your poll. That is, yes, and that's fair. I just want to make the point, though, um, that we decided what to ask people based on what was being relayed to us. So there were people who were attempting to contact us and come tell us, you know, basically, I'm sorry. I know I said I would take your survey, but I had an issue. The line's too long. I mean, they were telling us these things. Um, it's just at the time, you know, we did not design the poll thinking this, we'd be here today. You know, that's, that's just a fact. Yeah, I understand. I heard you explain that to your counsel. I understand that. Um, but for your poll, if somebody had um, gone to a, a Maricopa voter, went to a voting location that wasn't in Maricopa, and they found out they couldn't vote there, they could have reported that as an issue or complication when trying to vote in person, correct? I just want to make sure I'm understanding. So you're saying whether or not a voter who lives in Maricopa, who can vote anywhere in the county, went to the neighboring a neighboring county and voted? Is that what you mean? It's just a hypothetical. So that voter, had they done that? I suppose it's possible, but we're talking about such a large numbers. Uh, it shows that there was a, something systemic going on. There, it, we're not uh, talking about a, a whole third, a third of those who reported on election day that they had some complication. That's not going to be um a culmination of a ton of different issues it's very unlikely highly unlikely it means it indicates there was something systemic going on but a voter who showed up and had to vote provisionally say because their identity couldn't be verified that person could report that they had an issue or complication when voting right no No, they would have voted they they're they're, if they cast a ballot provisional or not they they would have they would have continued, completed the been instructed to complete the survey. Let me clear. I think I think maybe my question didn't come across. The the question I was trying to ask you is a person who went to a voting center, expected to vote, and then found out that they could only vote provisionally. They might report that as an issue, uh, or or complication when they yes vote. yes ma'am uh, yes. Now that I understand your question better, yes. Thank you. Apologize for the the lack of clarity there. So. Just a couple more of these sort of hypos. So a voter who, say, had to spoil their ballot and then vote a new ballot, they could have reported that as an issue or complication when voting on Election Day, right? I think that's unlikely. I have we we did actually speak to several people who asked us whether they were looking for instruction. They got a bail in the mail and then they wanted to vote on Election Day. So they told us they went down to the polling station. Uh, their mail ballot was, they were told their mail ballot would be spoiled, but they wanted, and I know this just has to do with how voters are feeling right now, but they wanted an election day ballot and they wanted it to go through the tabulator and count that day. There was just a group of people who just were diehard about this. So if they received an absentee ballot, 
they were in telling us that they were instructed it would be spoiled. And then we told them complete the survey. You voted and it will be counted. Right. And I'll just clarify the question again. The question is just if a person, a voter, like you said, a frustrated voter who had that experience, who actually voted, they might have still reported in your poll that they had a complication or issue when they went to vote. Um. I, I honestly don't think that's likely. I don't. We interact with them. We do. So, I mean, we're constantly, uh, you know, if they have an issue or something, our agents are telling them, no, that's no, that's not. You were able to cast a vote, you know, and then that's it. I think it's unlikely. It's Is it possible? Sure, I guess. But if somebody didn't say anything out loud to us, but we are constantly interacting with them. We're very hands on. We try to be. <laughs> we really do. But again, we've done so many of these. I really have to point out we've done so many of these and these issues are not new. A lot of these issues you're bringing up. So it doesn't explain why out of nowhere we're seeing such huge positive responses. It, we would see this elsewhere. Okay. Um, I'm just going to clarify. We're on a, a very limited clock. So if you can just answer my question and then your counsel will have an opportunity to ask you any clarifying questions and, and elicit more testimony. I'll do my best. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, to kind of wrap this up here. So your poll doesn't give us any specific numbers about how many voters had issues that related to tabulators. That's correct. correct. That's correct. And it doesn't give us any information about what number of voters had issues that related to long lines. That's correct. True. Correct. I think in our conversation and also with your conversation with counsel, you uh, mentioned sort of a geographical analysis that you did about where uh, respondents of your poll reported encountering issues. Yes. Is that right? Okay. So I'd like to ask you a little bit about that now. You did that analysis by looking at the different congressional districts in Maricopa. Is that right? Yes. 2022, by the way. 20, yeah. Right. Right. All of my questions, just to be clear, pertain to the 2022 general election. Redistricting, yeah, I'm just yeah. I understand what you're saying. The, the districts changed between yes. 2020 and 2020, and you used the districts as they were in 2022. Yes. Okay. How did you determine where a poll respondent resided? How did you determine which congressional district they voted in? So we do know. Uh, over, that's a little scary, but you know a lot about a voter from the voter file. Uh, so we do try even using, if they're on a cell phone, using longitude, latitude to verify where, where they're, uh, claiming to vote is, uh, is honest. So we do ask them, uh, what congressional district they live in and vote in. And then we do verify that through the voter file. We even give them a map if they have a, if they're taking a survey through a certain mode, where they can view, they can even see the map of their own address. So what, to clarify, was it a question in your poll? Did you ask the voter, where did you vote? No, just in which congressional district do you live in and vote in and reside? So the question was, which congressional district do you reside in? Both. They get both. That's what I'm saying. Did you live in? And Maricopa is a little bit different because you can vote anywhere. So you can go up the street and end up outside of Mr. Biggs's district and end up in uh, Mr. Stanton's district. So uh, they, they get both questions. 
And we have the added benefit if they're taking that question on a cell phone. We can track them with their longitude and latitude. Software is crazy these days. Okay, and I think your general testimony was, and please clarify if I'm mischaracterizing, but something along the lines of that congressional districts that ultimately elected either a Republican or Democratic candidate. That's the basis for which you said this is a, you know, a Democratic area or a Republican area. Is that right? Uh, that's part of it, I would say. We did show um, whether or not it was prior to the election represented by either a Republican or a Democrat, whether that congressional district changed hands. Um, but also as well, uh, judging by we Again, it's hard to really look when you're looking at samples this this size. It's hard to look by centers. So there are parts of congressional districts we know uh, support, you know, more Democratic candidates than Republican candidates, and vice versa. But uh, that is part of it. Yeah, we 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 tried to provide both. Congressional District Nine is one of the districts that's in Maricopa, right? You one. But five, uh, Schweikert, Siskamani, Stanton, um, yeah, there's ultimately what we had, I believe, was five congressional districts in, in total, I believe, that wrap through. But I'd have to look and make, you know, make sure. There's small samples. Sometimes you'll get a couple from, you know, a corner of one district, yeah. Are you aware of how many congressional districts are in Maricopa? There are five congressional districts that wrap through Maricopa, yeah. Would it surprise you to learn that there are eight? Oh, well, uh, no, it wouldn't. Sorry, but there were five that participants that took the poll. There are five in the report. I see. So there are three of the eight. Yes. Congressional I, I, that's what I meant by a few of you. Oh, sorry. Sorry. So uh, does that mean that in your poll, respondents only came from five of the three districts. There were sorry, five of the eight districts. There were some in others, and they're on the t they're on the table, but they're so in statistically insignificant. I really can't draw any conclusions from them, and they're they're in the report. Okay, so there were three districts, three congressional districts in Maricopa, where you didn't have enough of a response to be able That's to correct. Report what the issues, how frequent the issues were in those congressional districts. Is That's that correct. Right? We're talking about 0.2%, 0. Point, you know, it was very small. Okay. And one of those congressional districts I remember from your report is Congressional District 9. Is that any reason to disagree yeah. with me? And yeah. I'm not sure. I, I mean, I'd have to have it in front of me to make sure I know exactly which one, uh, eight, uh, I know the percentage for eight, you know, first, uh, I, I, to feel comfortable if you're about to ask me about percentages, I, I'd need to, you know, honestly refer to. One, yeah. Good. So you, you analyzed, um, for each congressional district, what percentage of the people who reported problems or complications resided in a specific district? Is that right? 
Yes. So if I'm memory serves, about 30% of the people who said they had uh, encountered issues came from the first congressional district, what is now the first congressional district, um, and the eighth congressional district, if I remember correctly, uh, was about 14%, I believe. Uh, the, uh, there's the fifth as well. I mean, I, I, again, I'd have to have it, you know, right from, but got. I thought you were going to ask me. Sorry. Um, so you you just reported some percentages, and it, it's fine if they're exact or not. I'm not I'm not asking you to. It's not a memory test to report what the percentages were. Um, what I wanted to know about is when you reported that percentage. I think you just said around 14 percent for CD8. Did you consider how much of the voter population resides in CD8? Sure, and that's why we chose to show it as a that it is. First of all, that waiting, if it was necessary, would have uh, taken care of that as a share of the overall population in Maricopa. So it it doesn't it's not necessary. There was because each district is representative as far as how many came from that uh, that district in the overall sample. Uh, basically, it it's the principle of randomization. It wouldn't matter if there were 30% more in David Schweikert's district versus a much less populated district like Andy Biggs's district or uh, more populated like former Stan, uh, former Congressman Stanton's district. It wouldn't matter. They're still had, they still have the same probability of being as, uh, of, of uh, being asked a question. So they're, they're basically going to, uh, we have to look at this by, by, uh, vote by party and, 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 you know, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but they still have the same probability. So it doesn't really matter that the one district is smaller than the other. Um, it doesn't. So just back up and make sure I understood then. So the, the congressional districts that you excluded from this analysis, um, I think we determined it was three of the eight. Does that mean that there weren't sufficient voters from those three districts who reported having problems and that's why they're not included? No, the size was so small. That's why they weren't included. The sample size from that district. Maybe I'm misunderstanding you, but yeah. Yes, the sample size. Okay. So for an excluded district, you didn't have a large enough sample size to say whether or not voters had problems in that district. Right. That's right. So for the three of eight, there wasn't enough voters to determine whether there were problems in that district. That's fair to Okay. Okay, so moving on, um, you discussed some calculations with your counsel and you provided some calculations in your report about what could have happened had turnout been different than what it was. Is that right? Yes. And specifically, you in your report did those calculations based on if turnout had been 2.5% higher for all voters. Not turnout, turn because that might confuse turnout rates. With if the total, if the total vote was just two percent higher, not a turnout rate. If the total vote was two percent higher or two and a half percent higher, what would that be? I understand that fall within the range of the share the election day vote was projected to make out. I understand. So you're saying had two point five percent more voters voted 
what would have happened. (laughs) And specifically, you're looking at what would have happened if those 2.5% of voters had voted on election day. Correct. Correct. Because we we have all the ballots from early votes. So it could only have been from election day voters, the only population. You don't have any evidence specifically other than your projection that 2.5% of total voters stayed home on election day, correct? Yeah. And, and just to be clear, I'm, I'm trying in that report just to show whether or not we needed a, some historically ridiculously high significant number to show up. Um, but I was looking at that two and a half, uh, and just, it, I, I think it's probably the least significant number to look at. It's whether or not they could historically and from what people told us, whether or not election day vote could have increased as a share of the overall electorate by what it would have needed to in order for it to change the outcome. Okay. And other than your projection, you don't have any evidence that 2.5% of total voters stayed home on election day. Not just the projection, you know, the, everything that goes into your projection, including what people told us and their vote history. And yeah. So, but it's your projection, right? Well, sure. Sure. And you're not offering any opinion that 2.5% of total voters stayed home on election day because of tabulator issues, correct? Well, my opinion is that's, you know, it's when you look at Joe voter, uh, you know, where for politicos, it, it might be a little hard to understand how, you know, average people would react if they were listening to their friends or they saw on social media, they saw new news reports. Uh, there were widespread issues. Uh, and that deterred people from voting or if there were long lines, people couldn't wait in. Uh, it's easy to see how people walk away. Not everyone is so, you know, in- intense about politics that life can't be put aside. Life gets in the way. So is that a no? You're not offering an opinion that 2.5% of total voters stay at home on election day because of tabulator issues? Maybe not, you know. Oh, no, no. Let me clear that up. What I am saying, you yeah. said no. No, no, I, no, it's no, because I, I'm trying to explain that it is my opinion that the problems that people heard about and the issues they experienced and that that is two and a half percent, not that much to 40,000. That is my opinion. Absolutely. From what people told us. And the amount, the percent that was missing from the poll, again, at all the exit polls we we have ever conducted, you don't see missing participants like this without something happening, some other variable getting thrown into the equation. You're not offering an opinion that any specific percentage of voters stayed home as a result of tabulator issues on election day, are you? A range. A, the range. Yes, I gave a range. I mean, I can't give us, nobody can give a specific number. I can only give you, you know, an idea of whether or not it's, it's, um, mathematically, you know, or not even just whether or not the range that is reasonable, you know, we can conclude with it's a degree of mathematical certainty that this affected this chunk of voters. Is that enough uh, to to have changed the outcome? And I am offering the opinion that that range is enough to put the outcome in doubt. So you're offering a range, not a specific number, correct? That's correct. You can, if that, yes. Okay, let's talk about some of the the math that you did, and you don't have to bear with me. Lawyers are notoriously bad at math. Um, Okay, so you do a calculation based on what would have happened if 2.5% more voters turned out, 2.5% additional voters, not as a 
proportion of turnout as we just put out. Um, and you give a projection of what would have happened in the election had those people turned out and voted on election day, right? Yes, it would only be election day voters. Okay. And that calculation that you do, you said 2.5% is about 39,000 more voters. Does that sound right? Well, I know, yes, it does. Um, but the two and a half percent is, uh, I, I, you really shouldn't focus on that. The different, the, what the point is the range of the share of election day vote, how many voters would have needed to turn out, how many more voters to push the share, the overall share of the election day voter, you know, as opposed to those who dropped off in a box, those who voted by mail to push it within a certain, basically I'm looking for the low of my range. So we estimated it would be over over one fifth, could be a quarter of the vote was election day vote, as, by the way, model uh, model one does on in the 2022 Maricopa uh, plan. It could have been that high, which would have pushed election day voters from 250 roughly to 300, much closer to 300. Um, I'm looking for the bottom of that range, which is roughly 20 20 to 22 percent. You know, I understand that you're looking at a range. I'm, I'm actually, I understand your opinion. I'm not asking you about that. I just want to talk about the actual calculation that you did. Okay. So the number that you used was 2.5 percent and you that was about 39,000 more votes on Election Day. Does that sound right to you? Roughly. Yeah. OK. As of Election Day, there were 2.5 million registered voters in Maricopa. Does that sound right? Yes. Of those, 1.3 million had already voted before Election Day, right? Those are all those early votes that were already cast. Even about 900, a little less than 900,000 voters who would have been eligible to vote. That's true. You're going you're to need to fix my math if this is wrong. But 2.4 minus 1.3, I think, is about 1.1 million voters. Say that again. <laughs> we said there were 2.4 million total registered voters. Oh, yes, in yeah. but, but we have to remove the Election Day votes. That Go ahead. Go ahead. I understand what you're saying. Yes. Let's just take it step by step so we're we're on the same page. Um, so of those 2.4 million, 1.3 million had already voted by Election Day. That's those early voters, non-Election Day voters, correct? There was more than that, though, if you count those who drop by Dropbox and, okay. and voted in person early, right? Sure, that whole number. So that would have left about 1.1 million voters who could have voted on Election Day. Sure, sure. And we know that 250,000 of those voters did vote on Election Day. But nobody has a perfect uh, voter file, so you can't get the 100% turnout. So when the difference between your 1.1 and where I'm where I'm going uh, with it's less um, is that they're just there are voters who just aren't going to show. These are not high propensity voters. They I can't justify that they could have showed up. They don't have the vote history to show up. I, I understand. I'm not. I'm not asking you about that. Okay. Um. So I think, and I think you said a nine hundred thousand number is. Is that what you mentioned just now? Just now? No. Okay. So we'll just. So two hundred fifty thousand vote people voted on election day. Does that sound right in Maricopa? Roughly. Yeah. Okay. And. Taking out the number of people who had already voted before Election Day, so adding that group up with the people who actually did turn out on Election Day, that leaves about 900,000 voters in Maricopa who who ultimately didn't vote in the election. Does that sound right? Yeah, ballpark, yeah. Okay. 
Now, 2.5% of those voters, that's not 39,000, right? No. That's about 22,000. Yeah. I mean, I'll take your word for it. I, I used a calculator. Yeah. Um, so, so we have a ballpark of 22,000 votes. Yeah. Using your 2.5%. Yeah. Okay. And you say that the vote splits on election day, you give a range, but you say, you know, about 70% broke for, uh, Miss Lake and about 30% voted for Governor Elect Hobbs is, is one of the ranges that you use. Is that right? It's not a, it, I'm sorry, not, not a range. It's a specific number. Yeah, yes, there are specific numbers. Uh, I was being actually conservative with those numbers. The yeah. first, you know, the first tabulated batch from Maricopa was a much higher margin. And just to be clear on the math before, it did two and a half percent of what is, had been voted already. Just to show whether it was plausible. It's not a matter of what, what's left. We know what's left out there uh, as far as who is still eligible to vote. So I'm not using, I wasn't using that two and a half percent as that, uh, you, you know, as a, uh, I see where, what you were saying, but that's not the relevant math. The relevant math is whether or not there is enough voters to push the overall share of the election day vote. The two and a half percent you're focusing on a lot. Uh, that's not the point of the number. You didn't pull two and a half percent of the air. I was just trying to show how small of the vote that had been cast uh, would have need to been changed. It's not um, the, the relevant number is the percentage of people who did not uh, participate and whether or not there still would have been enough eligible voters out there uh, that could have pushed the share of the election day voter higher. And then that would have changed the outcome because of the margin. And I didn't pull 70 percent out of thin air. That is the vote total. That's that's she she had uh, one among the, the group of voters we're talking about in question. OK, but taking your number, just this is the number you reported and that's the reason I'm using it. I understand that you're saying that there could have been a range. But the number you used was 2.5%. So I just want to make sure we're understanding what that 2.5% actually means. So that's that's what the I understand. About. I understand. Okay. So taking your number, the 2.5% of the voters who could have been left to vote on election day, that's actually about 22,000, not 39,000. I'm talking about the entire election. Entire election. That too, and that you're 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 again. Uh, the math is still the math. There was still uh, enough of the pew. What the exit poll indi- indicated to us was that it could have been 20% of that 250 that did not show up because of a lack of completion of that questionnaire and because of the issues they reported. Um, again, would there, if that's the case, would there be 50,000 votes remaining, uh, you know, from those who already voted early versus those who voted by election day? And there would have, there would have been 800 plus thousand, uh, that, and, and there to speculate that they would have voted, they could have voted by mail. I mean, the, the mail was done. It's in, there's, Nothing else to talk about. We're talking about election day. Is there enough? And I'm using that as a, that two and a half percent of the total vote just to see whether or not it would fall anywhere near that range. And it would. So you gave some projections, um, had 39,000 people more, 39,000 more people voted on election day, right? Yes. 39,000 people out of the 250,000 people who did vote on election day. That's about a 16%. Okay. Yes. So. Your hypothetical, the, the number you chose, what you're evaluating is what could have happened in theory if almost 16% more voters had turned out on election day. Is that right? 
It, 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 yeah, that's fair to say. I mean, it could have because of the margins and they did vary. Uh, for instance, some of the door uh, draw three, uh, she won 80 percent of those votes. It wasn't 70. I was being conservative with that 70 percent. The truth is, uh, in the areas that we're talking about that are likely, if you want to call them suppressed, I don't know what you know term you want to use. But those voters who didn't show because of those lines in some of those areas, it was higher. I was being conservative with 70 percent. Miss Lake was winning 76% plus of some of these areas. So it, it didn't need to be, or it didn't, it might not needed to even have increased by 15%. Or six, That's, or 15, yeah, I, 15, 6.7, maybe something like that. Yeah. I, I defer Sorry. to your math over mine. 15, um, around 16%. Okay. That's actually sort of what you just talked about. It was, it's actually a little bit different than what I was trying to ask you about. So let me just rephrase what I was trying to ask. Um, you had this 39,000 number. Of 250,000 voters, that's about, that's just a raw number of about 16% of that total that actually turned out on election day, right? Sure. Okay. So your 2.5% selection, that, that example that you gave, what that is really saying is what would have happened if 16% more voters had turned out on election day, right? It is, but that's not unusual in what we do. It's okay. not. It happens. And so the math, the way you've done it, that that basically assumes that one out of every six voters who is going to vote on election day didn't vote, right? I guess that's fair. A little, not a little less actually, but the you know the 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 truth is, who are you know the. the, the we we absolutely can anticipate that that could have happened. It's not that many votes. It's not. And we, if you look, and another thing here is that made me a little bit uncomfortable is how much those numbers would have made the election day vote as a share of the overall electorate. But then when I look at new registrations and who is voting, uh, who is registering to vote via what is essentially Arizona and Maricopa's permanent absentee ballot there, 25% are not registering to vote by mail. So it seems to me, you know, 10 years ago, Arizona was 80 plus percent all mail. It seems to me that the election day vote is getting more and more of the electorate as time goes on. And I think that probably, you know, the parties, like I said, they employ uh, strategies to, to get voters to vote different ways. I think it would be uh, folly. American people are are uh, unpredictable, and I think it would be folly if that's what the uh, data tells us they were going to do. It would be folly to pretend like we know better. In your direct testimony, you use the term disenfranchised. What did you mean by that term? I think if governments uh, you know, can't do everything in their power, there are always problems on Election Day. There's always going to be something that turns up. But if this was normal, then I would see this in every exit poll I do. This was not normal. This is the first time this has ever happened to me. The first time. So I can only assume these people... I mean, when you hear the frustrations in their voice, like we did, 
Uh, there's no, there's no other word for it. Okay. So by disenfranchised, you mean the people who chose not to vote? I, I would argue they didn't choose not to vote. Again, they may have chose not to vote early, but that's their right. They chose to vote on election day and they were not provided ample opportunity to do so. This one gentleman's going to stick in my head forever. He showed up. It was 713 in the morning. And he said, you know, I'll, vo- I'll vote after work if I can. I don't know if he did or not. And that to be fair, but he didn't take the exit poll. And I think just one last question for you. Um, you have no knowledge that anyone from Maricopa County or otherwise intentionally tampered with the printers or, ba- or tabulators, correct? Not my purview, ma'am. No, correct. Although I will say this, uh, when you look at it by congressional I'm sorry, district, you said- Oh, no, no, you're right. Thank you for your time, Mr. Bertus. Thank you. You might have a little more time to go. This is brutal, man. Shut up, lady. You're literally helping the man. She just keeps asking the same questions. Good morning. How long have you been working in the polling industry? Uh, Altogether, about eight years. Did you start eight years ago, or was there a gap? Six. Six. Did you start eight years ago, or was there a gap? I don't understand what you mean. So the last eight years of your professional life, you've been working in the polling industry. Is that correct? 2014 on, uh, polling and elections. Correct. How familiar are you with the challenges to the polling industry, technical and otherwise, that precede 2014? Um, Only from research, sir. You testified earlier that even the Associated Press has broken away from traditional polling practices. Is that correct? That's correct. Traditional exit polling practices. That was your testimony. Are you aware that they've also broken away from traditional polling practices from pre-election? For pre-election day polling? Yes. Yes. Do you know why? Uh, They moved to a different panel, uh, response biases, various, um, I imagine, like everybody else. But you're familiar with the technical issues, with the the changing behavior of the American people with regard to cell phones rather than landlines, working people out of the home, people answering in the home, uh, random digit dialing, no longer. That's right. So because of those changes, polling, specifically in the last 25 years, has been notoriously flawed, correct? Not all of it. Some of it? Most of it? Most of it. Yes. Now, as a pollster, you're familiar with the term random sample. Yes. And my understanding from your report is that you sampled or attempted to sample 813 voters in the state of Arizona? Uh, No, 813 just in Maricopa. 813 just in Maricopa. It was a a statewide survey. That was what represented Maricopa. And how many voters in Maricopa? About 813, yes. And not not about 813 that qualified and participated. I'm sorry, I wasn't clear on my question. How many registered voters are there in Maricopa County? Um, there are about 2.4 and change, almost two and a half, I would say. And would you say 813 is a 
sample size that would give you a significant amount of confidence in the outcome of that? You know, I, I do. And uh, the reason I would say that is because we're looking at su- certain subgroups of the population It is a midterm. Uh, so admittedly, not everybody is going to come out and vote. There are people who have vote histories that support that. That's part of projecting uh, this. It, the, the projections we use for turnout is goes into the sampling errors, uh, the, the calculations we do for sampling errors. But 813, so there are polls out there right now from before the election that did 800, maybe even less of the state of Arizona, not just Maricopa. What confidence level did you attribute to your 813 sample size? About three and a half percent. Plus or minus? Plus or minus. And you said there were 2.4 million voters in Arizona? Yes. In Arizona County? But there's not going to be uh, 2.4 projected you know, to turn out. What steps did you take in order to ensure that those 813 were selected randomly? That's a great question. Um, we use a vendor, a national voter file database. And uh, in this case, it is national, but we obviously just st- stuck to Arizona. And they draw a random sample off of the voter file. And from there, uh, when we contact them, it is randomly selected. So I understand from your testimony that you did not select the random sample. Is that correct? Well, of course I did. I mean, it's every vendor. You testified that a vendor did. Is that correct? No, the no, vendor no, is the data that. source. Yeah. It is randomly selected. Okay, so... Your Honor, may I, may I object? I would just ask that counsel allow the witness to finish responding before he interrupts him. Here's the way it has to work, okay? Your attorneys on the other side are going to have the chance to ask other questions. So, like I said before, wait until the question's completely asked, and there may be an objection. So if you see somebody stand up, it's a clue, an objection's coming. Give me a chance to rule on it. Before you answer, then I'm going to let Mr. Liddy give him a chance to answer before you ask the next question. But when you, if you're asked a question and you can answer it yes or no, you should answer it yes or no and move on. And then other questioning later will maybe clarify further the answer. Okay. So. Next question. Mr. Barris, I apologize if I misunderstood your response. I now understand your response to be that you got the universe of registered voters from a vendor, but it was you yourself that did the random sampling. The software does the random sampling for everybody, counselor. Everybody. For everybody. Most, <laughs> the, all the pollsters, let me rephrase that. All the pollsters I know rely on software to draw random samples from the database. I'm not sure. Now, when you when you collect a random sampling, you're going to assume that some of those people that were randomly sampled are not going to participate in the poll, correct? Absolutely. So, in your original universe, it exceeded 813. Um, yes, of course. Yes, I understand you correctly. Yes. And then you assume that those who decline to participate in your poll. And that those who, well, I mean, I want to ask a compound question. You will assume that those that you invited to participate in your poll but chose not to, their behavior would be the same as those who did choose to participate in your poll, correct? Not always. Um, And that's why we're big proponents of larger samples. 
because the, you know people are different. And um, for instance, you know, a more educated voter of the same party would be much more likely to uh, participate uh, than somebody who's non-college educated, even though that's the same party and they may appear to be the same kind of voter. That's a no. Yes, but yeah, that's a no. I, I would imagine yes. You got. It. So when you get responses, you're not assuming that people who did not respond were going to behave in the same manner as those that did respond. Is that your testimony? No, and that's mischaracterized. You have, to, I mean, obviously it's principles of random sampling that you assume that everybody has the the same chance and that they will. But we believe in larger samples to reduce that error. That's maybe I, I wasn't saying that correctly, okay. but that's that's what I'm trying to get at, uh, Mr. Barris, is which is it? Do you make an assumption that those who don't participate in your poll will behave in the same manner as those who do, or do you not make that assumption? We make the assumption that those who do participate will uh, will, will mirror the behavior of those who don't, yes. And particularly, you were interested in tracking the behavior of people by voter registration. Is that correct? Um, not only, no. But it's correct that you were interested in tracking the behavior of people by voter registration? And for this poll alone, are, are, are you, I just want to make sure I'm understanding your question. For this poll alone, you're asking if I'm interested in tracking the behavior of registered voters. Yes, for the issues before this court. Your poll, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yes, that's at the most simple, basic, yes, yes. I think you testified that in addition to party registration, there are many different variables that can impact the behavior of a voter, correct? Correct. Did you test for those in this poll? Uh, give me an example. Well, let's say that in a previous election, there was a candidate for statewide office who was registered a Republican. Prior to 2022. And then in 2022, there was a candidate for federal, for statewide office who, upon winning the primary, feigned to have a dagger and slaughter the supporters of that other Republican. Could that being broadcast throughout the state affect the voting patterns of other people that are registered as Republicans? that you would anticipate and, in fact, did vote in 2022? I got to be honest. I, I mean, Your Honor, I don't know. I could. That's such an over-the-top example. I, I don't know if I could be make a serious response to that. You can ask to have a question rephrased if you, if you wish. If you don't understand the question, don't guess. Please say that you can't. Can we get a – yeah. Um, there are events. That do that do change voting behavior absolutely. And that, okay. And are you aware that that, as you characterize it, over the top example, actually happened? It's not a hypothetical. No, I'm not. Okay. And so, therefore, you did not test for that in your survey. The re- results of which are here in this court. Yeah, but if you're suggesting it impacted one group of, of voters over the other. I can absolutely point to 10 counterexamples where our main problem is not a response bias that would act in the direction that would change the behavior of a voter in the course you're suggesting. I can point to 10 others that would 
uh, suggests that I have to do my job a lot harder and dig a lot deeper because voters are so terrified to even talk to people and give their opinions anymore. So, I mean, so it's your professional opinion that registered Republicans in Maricopa County that have a history of voting in every election and have for Senator John McCain every time he was elected and when he ran for president would not have a negative reaction to another Republican running statewide who feigns to slaughter McCain supporters? Uh, you know what? That's all going to come up in, in, in the margins for candidates, you know, and if they tell me they're going to vote, your examples are relevant because if you're telling me they're going to vote and they have vote history, they're not going to lie to a pollster. They'll just simply tell me I'm not going to vote. Okay. So your opinion is that my examples not going to matter. Is that because every registered Republican is going to vote the same way in every election, regardless? Millions of people every day are reaping the health benefits of using cannabis oil, also known as CBD. This new product derived from hemp has fascinated doctors and scientists around the world for its powerful effects on the human body. If you are in need of alternative methods for health empowerment, please visit www.naturalhempoil.com. That's www.naturalhempoil.com. CBD is now legal in over 40 states, and our products are non-psychoactive and contain less than 0.3% THC levels. We also offer products for household pets. NaturalHempOil.com does not claim to treat cancer, PTSD, epilepsy, anxiety, insomnia, joint pain, eczema, or any chronic condition that you may have been diagnosed with. Please consult with a doctor before you take CBD. Results may vary, so give our natural CBD a try at www.NaturalHempOil.com. That's www.NaturalHempOil.com. When it comes to stubborn belly fat, we're all searching for a miracle pill which may never exist. But believe it or not, I may have found the next best thing. It's called Belly Trim, and it's more effective at targeting belly fat, enhancing metabolism, and promoting a toned midsection better than most weight management products I've seen typically found on store shelves. Tens of thousands of five-star reviewers can't be wrong. Simply place your order now to get 51% off along with many other free bonuses before they sell out by going to www.trimwithus.com. That's www.trimwithus.com. www.trimwithus.com. Order now. Energy bills are rising at a historic rate, and there's no end in sight. That's why tens of thousands are using this amazing little device from SavePowerBills.com. It's a small but smart gadget that stabilizes electrical currents, reduces dirty electricity, and helps protect your electronics. Just plug it into your home's wall outlet to help lower energy consumption and ultimately help reduce your power bills every month. Order now to get 65% off plus many free bonuses before they sell out by going to SavePowerBills.com. That's SavePowerBills.com. Order now. Energy bills are rising at a historic rate, and there's no end in sight. That's why tens of thousands are using this amazing little device from SavePowerBills.com. It's a small but smart gadget that stabilizes electrical currents, reduces dirty electricity, and helps protect your electronics. Just plug it into your home's wall outlet to help lower energy consumption and ultimately help reduce your power bills every month. Order now to get 65% off plus many free bonuses before they sell out by going to SavePowerBills.com. That's SavePowerBills.com. Order now.
Violent crime across the U.S. has skyrocketed. Between mass shootings, homicides, kidnappings, burglaries, and carjacking, it's never been more vital to learn how to protect yourself. This is why tens of thousands are choosing the Fighter Flare Flashlight. The Fighter Flare Flashlight includes an ultra-bright 800-lumen light, powerful strobe lighting modes for self-defense, a glass-breaking hammer, a built-in power bank, solar-powered recharging, rope and wire cutter, siren, high and low LED lighting modes, and much more. Simply place your order now to get 66% off along with many other free bonuses before they sell out by going to www.fighterflare.com. Order now at www.fighterflare.com. Fighterflare.com. Of whether uh, of the difference of the Republican candidate running for statewide office. Well, well, first let me just clarify. I'm not saying your your example uh, does doesn't matter. I'm saying I'd catch your example. I'd catch those voters, the vast majority of them. I'm going to catch them. So I'm not going to miss them. They're going to say no. I'm not voting for this candidate A because of whatever click. And that's it. Um, or I'm not going to vote because of it. They'll tell us that. Um, but what was the second part of your question again? What was the, or the follow up? I'll accept your answer. Your general conclusion is that fewer Republicans voted on Election Day than otherwise would have. But for the problems of the printers and perceived problems of the tabulators. Is that correct? I would just say, I would say general issues that led to long wait lines. Um, that's what we heard from the voters. No, I can't, you know, just nail down one. That's not my, um, you know, that's not my purview. And I believe you testified that your research is based upon your study of the behavior of these registered voters in previous elections in Maricopa County. Yes, it's fair to say. And did you track as a variable in your survey the wait lines of other midterm elections, such as 2018 or 2014, 2012? Sure. And compared them to presidential election turnouts as well. Well, what was the wait time um, of this? Oh, I thought you you looked at 2012. I thought you when you're saying wait, I thought you meant how much wait is given to uh, turnout for different uh, when you're modeling wait lines and you're being specific to wait times. That's correct. Um, no, I did not study the impact of wait lines in prior elections. I'll see that. So it's difficult for you to examine your own data from 2022 with regard to registered Republicans voting on election day and 2022 general election because of wait times based on previous behavior of Republicans who voted on election day when you did not look at the wait times in those previous elections. Well, and, and, and in fa- actually, in truth, I did look at some wait lines from the presidential election and 18. I didn't look, you know, um, in, in great depth. But I, I do understand that the wait lines in some areas reported wait lines were actually longer in 2020. But I think we have to be clear here that your wait time estimate is not the estimate for people who are waiting online. You're looking at site check to the time that they get a ballot. You're not looking at estimates of people who are wrapped around the corner in a shopping center, you know, a mile long. The county weight estimate is not the true estimate. And it, the three-minute estimate is greatly exaggerated by adding election day drop-off ballots into that equation. Thank you. So is it your testimony that you did not account for the wait times in the midterm elections of 2012, 14, and 18? We I would just say anything beyond a four-cycle uh, rolling uh, four cycle average, which is what we do, I would not have looked at now. And there's a just, if I may, there's a reason. No, it's for okay. That. You already okay. answered the question. I have another one. Um, is it your understanding that Republican vote out on 22 was low? 
Republican vote in 22 was low. No, it was in high. Maricopa County. It was still high. It was. Turnout was very strong for Republicans in Maricopa. And to what do you attribute your opinion that it was very strong? Uh, turnout rates uh, versus uh, the Democratic Party, for instance. Republicans absolutely outvoted. Democrats has a turnout rate 80 plus versus 80. Probably I haven't looked at the latest because the numbers have changed, but probably I wouldn't be surprised to hear if it is mid 80s, uh, while Democrats were much lower. Mid 70s. Mid 70s. Okay. Democrats very, very, very high. 59.9. Would you be surprised to hear that? No. Now you've said that you base your opinions in part on the previous voting behavior of the subjects of your survey, correct? Correct. And I believe your early testimony was that you have perceived a difference in voting behavior of people who vote on the from the early voting list who vote by mail and people vote election day. Is that correct? That's correct. And you base that on examining their voting behavior in previous election cycles? Uh, it's starting now to become a trend, but I base it on the actual vote totals that we're seeing come in. And that's part also on election day. We do get real-time results at my company. So I can actually see as Maricopa tabulates what those election results are. Um, so when I'm, and then, uh, you know, I'm going to compare that to our work on the exit poll to see how accurate we were. So for instance, in Maricopa or statewide, uh, what was uh, Ms. Hobbs's margin when all of the early, early vote was reported? And we'll go and we'll see how close we are in the exit poll, for instance. So you've based your opinion in part on the previous voting behavior of people who have voted early in Maricopa County as opposed to people who voted on Election Day. Is that correct? That's correct. And I, I would, and that's, that's yeah. the answer. And did you... account for a political party or a political campaign urging voters who already are on the permanent early voting list and have their ballots to not turn them in and vote on election day. I did. I did. try. I mean, we definitely looked at that. Did you make the assumption that the behavior of voters on the permanent early voting list who have a history of voting early were going to change their behavior in 2022, because now they were going to vote on Election Day. A great deal of them told us that, yes. So then your assumption that people's behavior tends to be the same, whether they vote early two or three or four cycles back versus one year, is non-valid, correct? No, I think you're misinterpreting. I mean, if they're going to vote at all, they're going to vote based on prior behavior. How they vote by method changes a great deal as time goes on. I would say from 2020 on, we we're really experiencing a very drastic change in how people, certain groups, are deciding to vote. And I think you testified that in Arizona or Maricopa County, I don't think you were clear, but according to your results, that vote by mail is getting less and less and less popular. It, it, well, I, I don't know if we can call that a trend yet, but it does appear from the last two cycles, um, that it, it will be, uh, it, yes, that, that's true. Just to be. Would it surprise you? With that, everybody. But. Would it surprise you that early voting popularity has exploded in Arizona? I don't know. What are you basing that on? Um, data, you know, early voters? Yeah. I, 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 you know, would because the people who registered in the last two years, uh, newly registered voters in Maricopa County are registering to vote less as an early vote than had in the past. You know, if you rewind to 2014, for instance, 
80 something percent of the vote, 85 percent. It wouldn't surprise me if Election Day vote was only 10 or 12 percent. Uh, now, um, those new voters, 25 percent of them are choosing not to register as early voters. So, so it would surprise you that the percentage of early voters that registered, uh, that people that registered for the early vote went from 75 percent to 77 percent? Well, you know what? That could happen. And then, like I said, it's still that they are not changing their status. You know, and when we talk to them, they are, as you said before, and you were right, there are people who are, and we can see them on the voter file, they're on the absentee ballot list. But then they tell us, I'm still going to bring my vote on election day, I'm going to bring my ballot. So I think we're just in a process and maybe it hasn't caught up yet, the data. And and you're aware that 84%, are you aware that 84% of the vote in general election 2022 was early voting? Yes. Combined? Yes. 16% election day. Thank you. No, No further questions, Your Honor. That's all the cross-examination. Okay, we desperately need the morning break. We're 35 minutes or 40 minutes past it. So we'll take a 15-minute recess. All right. We'll come back at 5 minutes to 11. All right, 15-minute intermission. So, of course, I'm going to give my commentary here on what I think about that. I I, I think I have to say um, I'm not sure what's going on here. They spent so much time on Richard Barris. They spent more time cross-examining him than they spent on Clay Perique. So something tells me here they're very worried about this data. So Richard Barris, the expert pollster, his task here was to show that the machine breakdowns resulted in voter disenfranchisement and that the, the margin of voters that were disenfranchised was larger than the margin of victory. And he submitted... A report in Carrie Lake's original complaint, which estimated, I think, somewhere, if I remember correctly, I thought it was between 16,000 disenfranchised voters and 29,000 or something like that. And uh, the numbers that he gave today were a little bit different. He said 25,000 to 40,000 estimated suppressed voters. And so the main basis for this was the, the the pre-election polls versus the exit polls. So uh, he said basically 20% of people who did a pre-election poll and said that they planned to vote and agreed to do a post-election exit poll did not complete the exit poll, which means there had to have been some sort of variable here because that's never happened before. And what he, what what the assumption here is is because those people didn't actually show up and vote and the implication is it's because of voter suppression uh there was also a poll part of the ex, ex, exit poll he asked people did you experience issues on election day and there was a, a a massive amount of people that said yes uh he also factored in historical averages specific vote center or or precinct or district uh, averages and vote history and all, all this stuff compiled together <coughs> to make these, uh, to put these numbers together. And his conclusion is that there was enough disenfranchisement to change the outcome of the election and swing this in the favor of Katie Hobbs, meaning it was rigged against Kerry Lake. And these are conservative numbers, by the way. I mean, he wasn't exactly making, uh, he wasn't exaggerating these numbers. In fact, he was doing the opposite, giving you the the lowest on the on the spectrum to be conservative so that, you know, 
There's no way that he could be wrong. Now, he did really well in the uh, the, the examination from Kurt Olson, uh Carrie Lake's attorney, and I was I was concerned. I was like he's doing really good right now, but when he gets into cross-examination, that's when things are really going to come down to the wire. Uh, when the county attorneys start interrogating him, I was worried. I'm like, how is he going to do? And I think he did really well. I think he did really well pushing back on these attorneys, kind of making them uh, make asses of themselves. And you could clearly see the attorneys were asking the same questions over and over and over and over 10,000 different ways because they, they couldn't pin, <clears throat> they couldn't pin him down. He refuted all of their arguments. Um, in the beginning, they tried to taint the witness. They tried to discredit him. They said, well, have you ever studied the impact of long lines? No. Oh, judge, did you hear that? So he's he he's not an expert in long lines. That means he has no credibility whatsoever. Uh, you know, and they, they tried to say, have you ever published any scientific data that was peer reviewed? And he said, no. Oh, oh, he's not a credible expert uh, because you have to be in. You know, you have to be an academic, apparently, to be considered an expert to these people, which is not the case whatsoever. His credibility speaks for itself. Then they tried to say, oh, did are you aware that 5038 and the New York Times, they rank you an F and say that you suck? And he was like, okay, first of all, those are my competitors. Second of all, I have never published a poll outside of the sampling error meaning when you give when you do a poll uh you give a sampling error meaning this is correct within five percent it's an estimate but we know that we're correct within five percent margin of error so to speak and he has never published a poll that was incorrect outside of that margin now let's talk about new york times let's talk about politico let's talk about 538 how many times have they gotten it dead wrong? Off by 20-30%. So for the county to make the argument that, hey, these people that suck think that you suck, that doesn't hold up. That doesn't hold up whatsoever. But, of course, they have to attempt to discredit the expert rather than discredit the actual evidence. That was what they attempted to do first, and I think when they fell flat on their face... Then they had to, you know, actually work with the evidence. Um, it's the same thing that happened with Clay Perique. They tried to say, uh, excuse me, sir, but uh, did you attend Mike Lindell's Truth Summit? Yes. Oh, did he pay you? Oh, oh my God. That means that you don't have any, uh, none of the things that you said can be true then. Because you know Mike Lindell. I rest my case. I rest my defense. Open and, open and shut, judge. Like, they tried to associate him with Mike Lindell and say that means, well, despite the fact that you've had security clearances, uh, you're, you're you used to work for Pro V&V for nine years in certified Dominion machines and are an expert on these machines, despite the fact that you have uh, given numerous testimonies in uh, federal prosecutions. You've, you've given testimony that has led to prosecution in both the public and private sector. You've held security clearances because you know Mike Lindell. <laughs> um, because you know Mike Lindell, nothing you have to say here has any value whatsoever. 
It's just pathetic. Now, coming back to Richard Barris, there was a part where, <laughs> and I actually pulled this quote. The county's attorney said this, quote, it's not really an accepted practice in the polling industry to change or add questions partway through the poll, now is it? And Richard Barris said, yes, it is actually. In fact, um, when you're tracking a poll, you change the questions every single day. <laughs> so he completely just shat on, shat on her argument and made her look like an idiot that doesn't know what she's talking about. And then the attorney tried to ask the judge to strike that part from the record. Because it made her look like an absolute idiot. And the judge said no. He wouldn't strike it from the record. So he, he really bitch slapped her there. And that was funny. Uh, but I do have to say this. When we got to the part where they were, they were basically asking him a line of questions to intentionally discredit his math, there were a pup, there were a couple of parts there that really, uh, I have to admit, dampen it a little bit um because for instance <coughs> excuse me i'm still sick guys <clears throat> those of you that are new at, at this channel i've been sick for like a week uh but but george soros never sleeps he never takes a break rain sleep or shine so we are here today and i am speaking through my congestion as best i can so anyways remember that richard barris uh, he based a lot of his evidence on the pre and post polling data. And he also, in, in the exit poll, asked voters whether or not they experienced an issue on Election Day. Now, the county really dug into this and they, they tried to make the point that his polls, the scope was too vague to draw these type of inferences that he's drawing. They asked him, uh, did you ask people specifically if they had issues with machines, and he said no. It was a more general question. So the county was like, well, it could have been they had an issue with their voter ID. We don't know if it was a major uh, issue. We don't know if it was a, a very minor issue. And so that, I, I, I got to say, that dampens it a little bit. But I still think the obvious fact that machines broke down at 50% of the vote centers, it goes without saying that 99% of these people that said they had issues, it was a result of machines. But we're talking about a court of law here. Uh, sometimes common sense goes out the window. You have to actually, <clears throat> like, I mean, it, the burden of proof is much higher here when you're talking about especially statistical data. Um, so they asked him that question. And they try to the poke a hole in the credibility by saying, well, we don't know specifically if you had issues with the machines. Then they asked him, can you tell by your polling data how many people experienced long lines? And the answer was no. So <clears throat> we are. So he says we don't know what type of issues these people experienced and we don't know if these people experienced long lines. And then they said, <coughs> excuse me. Can you tell based on your poll how many people chose not to vote? And the answer was no. So effectively, they were trying to discredit the the evidence. They were trying to say uh, you can't prove voter disenfranchisement based on your polling data. But <clears throat> obviously, you can. Obviously, you can. When you know 
let's say you do these exit polls after an election for the last six elections, and you know statistically how many if 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 people agree before the election to do an exit poll, ninety percent of those people actually follow through with it, and then this election for some reason only 70% of those people followed through. So there had to have been some sort of a variable here to explain that discrepancy, right? And when we know that this massive amount of people had issues on election day, then, I mean, we can only, we can make the reasonable assumption that the result was because of voter, uh, you know, machine breakdowns, which led to long lines and voter disenfranchisement. People just didn't want to show up. Uh, so <clears throat> overall, I think Richard Barris did a phenomenal job, but I think we have to remember something here. Carrie Lake is coming at this at many, many different angles. I said yesterday, I think, uh, there's possibly four ways that she can win this. Uh, <clears throat> the judge in his dismissal ruling, he specifically said, okay, that gross negligence errors don't void an election unless there's fraud. Okay? So Carrie Lake has to prove fraud unless she can prove that the gross negligence threw more votes into doubt than the margin of victory. Okay? So I know that's confusing. But Carrie Lake either has to prove fraud or she has to prove that she has to throw enough votes into doubt, into question, that we don't know the outcome. If I, I hope that makes sense. So on that basis, and remember, that's according to the judge. That's how he's going to look at this. That's how he's going to base his ruling. He was citing a, a prior case, which was from a long, long time ago, I think from the 20s. But he was citing court precedent that that's how <clears throat> judges are supposed to look at this type of thing. So Carrie Lake has four ways that she can win as far as I can I can tell. She can prove fraud based on the expert testimony of Clay Parikh that the the uh the ballots that were printed on 20-inch paper with 19-inch ballot images was intentional, it was malicious and it was fraud. She can if she can prove that there if she can prove intent, that's one path to victory. The other way would be uh, regarding Richard Barris and his polling data. <coughs> Damn, sorry. Prove that more people were disenfranchised than the margin of victory. And that's a pretty uh, steep hill to climb to prove uh, that these people would have voted and they would have voted for Kerry Lake. It's really hard to prove that. Uh, the county's argument has been, okay, but these people chose to leave the line. It's not like they weren't given the option to vote. Everybody had the option to vote. They had the opportunity. If they chose to leave the line, that's not voter disenfranchisement. Uh, despite the fact that that defies all logic. I mean, if you have two-hour lines, and if you know that, uh, if you know that the lines uh, that they that they reported on the county website, the numbers were outright lies which we caught them admitting to that. Well, not admitting to it. We caught them in a lie. Um, then it, it appears that there was intentional voter suppression and an attempt to minimize the amount of voter suppression by the county. 
I remember yesterday. Basically, they they said, uh, how do you come up with these numbers for the wait times? And they said, well, it's reported to us through the poll watchers or the poll observers. And we updated on the county website. The The poll observers, they give us reports of how many people are in line about every 15 minutes, and then we update it. Kurt Olson was like, okay, would it surprise you to know that we have poll observers that have reported to us that the lines were much longer than you reported to the county website. So you're telling us that your numbers come from the poll observers, and we're telling you that the poll observers are saying that your numbers were wrong. So they caught him in that lie. All right. Anyways, back to the four ways that Carrie Lake can win. So we have two counts, remember. She can either win by proving fraud with the with the machine tabulator issue, uh, prove intent, prove malice, or she can prove massive amount of voter disenfranchisement that renders the outcome unknown. She can also, on the other count, uh, win this regarding the chain of custody. The ballots lack chain of custody on 300,000 ballots. We don't know if they were legal, illegal. There's no way to tell. We need we need a new election. Or she can rely on the Runbeck employee who said that she witnessed uh, ballots being inserted at Runbeck illegally. And actually, those two things go together. Because check this out. We don't have, we do not have whatsoever chain of custody documentation on ballots that were dropped off on election day. None whatsoever. Those ballots then get uh, transported and then they go to Runbeck. And when they go to Runbeck and you don't have chain of custody on how many Runbeck is receiving, then there's no way to tell if ballots are being inserted at Runbeck. So Carrie Lake can make the argument that we know ballots were inserted at Runbeck, but we don't know how many. There's no way to know if there was 50 or 50,000. But there's definitely illegal votes that were inserted. Um, Behizzi said, bro, you won't believe what just happened. Give me a call at some point. So I'm going to have to call him when we when the live stream comes back up. If you guys are just jumping in, remember that we are on a little break. And the live stream should be up in a few minutes. Uh, but, uh, yes, yeah, so <clears throat> I think... Regardless of whether or not the judge goes for Richard Barris's statistical data or not, that's not the only path to victory here. Um, I mean, basically, <laughs> Clay Perique, I was I was shocked that Clay Perik was able to was able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the the configuration was intentional of the of the ballot printers. The ballot-on-demand printers. I mean, I w- before this, I was like, man, that's a steep hill to climb. Proving intent, proving beyond a reasonable doubt that this was done on purpose. But I think he did that, and I'll tell you why. So effectively, what we learned in this trial is that it wasn't a matter of lack of toner, uh, printers not printing dark enough, you know, timing marks to be read by the machines. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. What happened was the ballots were 20 inches, the paper, okay? And every election ballot, 
um, PDFs, right? Like a, like a digital copy of the ballot is created before an election. And those PDF images are supposed to fit to the paper, right? A 20 inch piece of paper should have a 20 inch ballot image. And what we realized is that what they were doing was printing 19-inch ballot images on 20-inch paper. So then there's like an extra half inch on each end of paper hanging off. And when the ballot goes into the tabulator, the tabulator reads that extra half inch of, of white paper and thinks, hang on a second, there must be a paper jam. Because it, it, it thinks that there's uh, paper already inside the tabulator when really it's just that extra half inch of paper on the ballot. So then it spits it back out and it can't read the ballot. Okay. So that's why tabulators were not taking ballots because they were printing uh, 19 inch ballot images on 20 inch paper. And this was a, a, a countywide issue. Carrie Lake did a, a ballot inspection and found that 48 out of 113 ballots that they inspected had 19-inch ballot images printed on 20-inch paper. And so that's uh, why why things were thrown into such chaos. Now, Clay Parikh, not only did he prove that, but he said that this was not the result of human error. There's no way, no how, that's impossible. And here's why. Because the only two ways that this could have occurred is one, by the Maricopa County Elections Director's Office Creating a 19-inch uh, ballot image style. And we had the Maricopa County election director, co-director, say under oath that there was no 19-inch ballot style. And if that did occur, that would be the result of a failure or fraud. He said that under oath. So, either the Maricopa County elections director's office is lying and they did create a 19-inch ballot image, or Clay Perique said it could ha it could have happened another way, and that would be for somebody with admin access to the laptop that hooks up to the ballot printers, overrided the settings, and it, it would have had to have been intentional because they needed admin access. Now. It looks like the live stream is back up. Guys, if you could do me a favor, smash the rumble button. Smash, subscribe, join this channel, baby. And let's tune back in to the epic smackdown of Soros' puppet, Katie Hops. Objections. The witness who purportedly received the voicemail never testified about what document was referred there and laid no foundation for its submission. Okay, I'll give that the relevance that it's entitled to, but I'm going to admit it over objection. Thank you, Your All right, Exhibit 120 is admitted. All right, I believe where we left off was the redirect. Yes, Your Honor, I have a few brief questions. Thank you, Mr. Olson. Mr. Barris? Has your com polling company ever been ranked by any professional organizations? Yes. And uh, which professional organizations ranked your company? Well, uh, it is my understanding it's being ranked by uh, Real Clear Politics right now. Uh, the only other um, 
bipartisan group, I would say, uh, that has uh, looked at our work thoroughly and ranked it uh, as Election Recon. They're a, they're a forecast website. And what was your ranking by Election Recon? Big Data Polls number two. Num- so your company is ranked number two yes. out of how many? They look at a lot of polls, uh, only publish the top 10. You have to have uh, four cycles of polling history to be ranked by them. So a good, a good deal. I would say it's probably in the neighborhood of 200 plus. So out of 200 plus polling organizations, you were ranked by Election Recon as number two. Yes. And is that based at least in part on the accuracy of your uh, polling results? It's yes. How, how much of a bias you may have to one party candidate or the other and your accuracy rate. In your cross-examination, counsel asked you uh, a number of questions about hypothetical issues that might have arose on Election Day that could have affected uh, turnout. Um, Based on your conversations with the participants in your survey, do you have an opinion as to or as to what the the primary issues that uh, those participants were telling you about? Absolutely. And what is that? Question, Your Honor. It calls for speculation and mischaracterizes the prior testimony and discussion. Okay. We could cure the second half of the objection by simply asking uh, asking a, a straight question and not basing it upon any statement of prior testimony or answers. Um, and I would... The question I think that you were posing, I, I just want to make sure that it's uh, directed to the basis for his statements related to um, the opinion relating to the reasons for not showing up. I'll rephrase the question, Your Honor. You understand what I, I'm saying? I think I do. Yes. All right. Well, if you don't, I think we'll hear about it in just a second. <laughs> so please re-ask the question, sir. <laughs> you, you, you were asked by counsel for the defendants a number of hypotheticals that might have affected uh, turnout on Election Day. You spoke with the partic- number of participants. Sorry, objection, Your Honor. Can I finish my question, maybe? He's repeating exactly what he did before, and he's characterizing my question as hypothetical when it was not. And the court specifically asked him to just pose the question without referring to my previous question. Your Honor, I'm actually not referring to his examination. I'm referring to your co-counsel, and she actually used the word hypothetical. Okay. I'll overrule it, let you re-ask the question along the lines that you're asking. Just restate the question, Mr. Jules. Yes, Your Honor. Mr. Barris, you were asked a number of questions by counsel for the defendants as what possibly could have caused voter concerns on election day. Do you recall that? Yes. In your conversations with those voters, what do you believe was the main concern expressed by those voters? Uh, long wait times and tab- the ballots not reading properly generally is what they expressed. You were also asked by Mr. Liddy about uh, certain events. I think he used the word if somebody uh, talked about a knife and some kind of gory details uh, as possibly affecting voters. Yeah, I recall. If I told you that uh, any comments like that were made uh, several months before the election, 
would any impact, any comments such as that uh, be uh, included in your uh, your data? Yes. As I said before, Mr. Olson, uh, people would tell us they're simply not voting uh, or, or they're voting for somebody else. It would have been included. It's after the fact. So I believe you said that you have never experienced a drop off rate on uh, exit polling that you experienced in November 2022 before. That's correct. And what was that drop off rate again? The drop off rate uh, is normally anywhere between five to eight percent. So for mail in balloting, those who chose to vote by mail, the drop off to uh, 93 percent completion rate, meaning of those who said, yes, I will take your exit poll. 93% did, in fact, complete the exit poll. Uh, It was 72% for election day voters, which we don't see the differences like that. They're not that stark. Never happened. So that was approximately a 19% drop-off rate in comparison? Uh, Approximately, yes. Out of how many polls have you conducted in your experience? (laughs) Uh, Over six years, I think it's fair to say uh, hundreds. Have you ever seen that much of a drop-off rate in of the several hundred polls that you've conducted in your six years? No, I've not. Have you ever experienced anything even remotely close to that drop-off rate? Not on an exit poll, no. Thank you, Mr. Barris, Your Honor. We have no further questions. May we excuse the witness? Yes, Your Honor. Barris, you're free to go, sir. Thank you, Your Honor. Okay. Counsel, we attended to all the exhibits that the plaintiff intended to offer. Yes, Your Honor. Okay. Do you have any further witnesses or testimony? No, Your Honor. So the plaintiff rest. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Pence. Thank you, Honor. We'll call our first witness, who's Kenneth Mayer, and he'll be joining us by the Teton's link. Very well. Mr. Mayor, can you hear me? I can, Your Honor. I'm going to have you sworn in, sir. If you'll raise your right hand, my clerk is going to swear you in. You do solemnly swear the testimony you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you, God? I do. Very well. All right, you may proceed when you're ready. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning, Dr. Mayor, and thank you for being here. I'd like to just begin by discussing your background. So first, will you please briefly describe your education? I have a Ph.D. in political science from Yale University that I received in 1988 in political science. I received a bachelor's in political science with a minor in applied mathematics from UC San Diego in 1982. 
next, will you um, describe what position you currently hold? I am currently a professor of political science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and an affiliate faculty at the La Follette School of Public Affairs, also at uh, UW-Madison. Now, can you briefly describe some of your scholarly work and the publications in which it appears? Most of my recent uh, scholarly work has been in the area of election administration, uh, everything from voter turnout to uh, wait time and non-voting, uh, voting rights, redistricting, uh, and also academic studies of the presidency. Okay, and can you, um, I know you just described a, a number of different areas of research. Can you focus uh, a little bit on some of your work as it relates to polling um, and tell us a little bit about your background there? I have actually done various polls since my earliest days at uh, Wisconsin. I was hired as a pollster uh, in the early 1990s. Uh, I have done work in the last 15 years, uh, surveys of state election officials. Uh, I'm on the board or steering committee of a unit here at UW called the Election Research Center. And we've done a number of polls around the Midwest and states in 2016 and 2020. Uh, I've also done surveys of uh, non-voters. So I've, I've been involved with the design and execution of surveys and, and polls uh, over the last 30 years. And another sort of relevant to this case area that I would like you to describe some of your background in, um, specifically, can you describe some of the work that you have done um, relating to polling place lines? I was part of a national research group that did a study of uh, polling place wait times and lines in, in 2016, uh, and I'm currently involved with some uh, advice or uh, consulting with a local municipality about optimizing their allocation of polling place resources to reduce wait times. <laughs> And have you previously testified as an expert in legal cases? Yes, many times. Have courts relied on your expertise and opinions? Yes, they have. Has a court ever rejected your testimony? Uh, as being excluded as a non-witness or not an expert witness, no. Have you served as an expert witness for both plaintiffs and defendants in the cases that you've been involved in? Yes. And have you worked on behalf of both Republicans and Democrats? Yes. Now, turning to this case and your work in this case, um, as it relates to printing and tabulator issues, what were you asked to do? Uh, I was asked to evaluate uh, claims that uh, issues at voting centers uh, caused uh, long wait times or had resulted in voters uh, basically walking off or, or not being able uh, to vote. My analysis was focused on the, the available data. Did you review the complaint that was filed in this case? 
Yes, I did. What about any of the attachments to that complaint? I reviewed the uh, attachments uh, uh, with respect to a number of the affidavits that uh, or declarations that that voters had filed and also reviewed the report of Mr. Barris. Have you watched any of the testimony that's been given in this case yesterday and today? Yes. Have you watched all of it? Yes. So as it relates to the uh, question that you analyze, what is what is sort of your high level opinion? My high level opinion is that all of the claims that were made in the complaint about the effects of voter wait times, the uh, claims of disenfranchisement, uh, claims of a disproportionate effect on uh, Republicans and late voters, uh, that they are all based on pure speculation, that there is simply no data to support any of those claims, and actually quite a bit of data that suggests that uh, those things actually did not happen. Okay, let's now discuss sort of the specifics of, of what you base your opinion on. Are you familiar with reconciliation and provisional vote data? Uh, yes. Just generally, what is that? So in this context, reconciliation data typically refers to comparing uh, data on the number of voters who check in at a polling place uh, and the number of ballots that are cast. Uh, provisional vote data, there are a number of circumstances uh, in which people will uh, present at a polling place. Uh, and for one reason or another, uh, there are questions about their eligibility. And rather than turn them away uh, after the Help America Vote Act in 2002, uh, polling places are required to let them vote provisionally. They cast a ballot, uh, and then after Election Day, election officials uh, try to figure out whether or not they were eligible. Uh, and if they're eligible, if they find out or conclude that those voters are eligible, the ballots are counted. Otherwise, they're rejected. And what about um, reconciliation data? What is that? Well, that's the comparison of uh, check-ins and ballots, which will provide information if there are people uh, uh, who check in at a polling place. When they check in, they show their ID, they identify themselves, uh, and the number of ballots that are cast, and those numbers should line up or, or be close. And did you examine reconcil reconciliation and provisional vote data in this case? Uh, I examined the summary data reported by uh, Maricopa County. And what did that data show? It showed that uh, there were, uh, I think the numbers are, there were 170 uh, voter difference between the number of people who checked in uh, and the number of people who cast a ballot. And we don't have information about why they were not uh, or, or they did not cast a ballot either a ballot that wasn't counted or uh, a, a potential walk-off. So that gives us an idea of the number of people who, for example, might have presented at a polling place and because of trouble with the ballot or trouble with the tabulator, uh, simply left without putting their ballot into door three. Uh, I also looked at the provisional vote data, uh, the summary data uh, produced by the county, 
which shows the uh, the number of provisional ballots that that were cast in the county. And what about, um, did you look at any data about voters who perhaps checked in at one voting location, but then didn't ultimately vote there and voted somewhere else? Yes. So there is a process uh, that voters who check in at a vote, voting center and for one re- reason or another have trouble turning in their ballot or uh, the ta- there was a tabulator issue. Uh, they didn't want to use the uh, door three they had the opportunity to actually check out of a vote station uh, and go to a vote center and go to another vote center. Uh, and it would also show up that if someone checked in at a vote center and for whatever reason uh, didn't uh, submit a ballot that was tabulated and they actually left the vote center without checking out and went to another vote center, that's also something that will show up in the data because then they'll, they'll, They'll be in the registration system twice, once where they checked in initially uh, and once where they checked in uh, a second time. And there were, uh, and I would have to look at the county report. I think there were, um, there were, there were 84 people, 94 people who checked out and then checked back in and voted. There were another 120 or so people who checked in and then left without checking out and then cast a ballot at a second vote center. Uh, and I think all but 13 of those ballots or all, all but 13 of those voters were able to successfully cast a ballot that was counted. Okay. So in your opinion, is there any reason to believe that large numbers of voters abandon their efforts to vote after encountering difficulties with tabulators? Uh, not only is there no evidence that that happened, uh, the evidence that exists suggests strongly that that did not happen. And I, I think you mentioned this already, but the vo- voters who perhaps did encounter an issue with a tabulator, did they have another option of how to how to submit their ballot for counting? Yes, they could have submitted them into what Arizona calls door number three, which is just a storage area within the tabulator uh, that the voter submits their ballot. Uh, and then it is later either tabulated at a tabulator at, at a central location or if it's not readable or there's an issue with the pens or the ambiguity of the mark, it's duplicated uh, and then tabulated. So there was there was a fail-safe option for voters uh, who could not get their ballot to be read by a tabulator at a vote center. Are in your experience with election administration and your work, are there um, are things like tabulator malfunctions something that can happen in elections? Yes, it happens. Uh, I want to make sure it, it is uh, it is one of the most common issues that that arises in the uh, the work on election day operations that I have studied. And is it possible for issues with tabulators to occur even when election officials follow best practices? Yes. It can happen for uh, uh, reasons that are not anticipatable. That can be just sort of 
machine breakdowns are the sorts of things that are hard to uh, hard to predict. When tabulators do break down, is that a reason to suspect that the integrity of the election results are somehow compromised? No, it's not. Are you familiar familiar with the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency? Yes, I am. What is that? Uh, It is a unit within the Department of Homeland Security uh, that was created to address critical infrastructure problems uh, and cybersecurity problems. And I believe it was in 2017 uh, when uh, election infrastructure was declared a critical infrastructure, it became part of the purview of that uh, unit within DHS. Has that agency put out any information or guidance on sort of how to think about tabulator malfunctioning and whether that has any effect on election integrity? Yes, they have. They put out uh, information uh, that uh, provides their conclusion that when you have a paper ballot, that's a physical record and that's universally agreed to be the best way to secure secure the integrity of elections because you have a physical representation of of the vote. Uh, and they they put out information to combat misinformation that says that the fact that there's a paper ballot means that tabulator malfunctions actually don't undermine the integrity of, uh, of elections because even if one tabulator uh, is not able to count a ballot. The ballot is still there. It can be counted. So in the view of CISA, a tabulator problem uh, does not compromise the integrity of an election when you have a paper ballot. Okay. So to kind of wrap up this this part of what we've been discussing, did you find any evidence that large numbers or any specific number of voters were disenfranchised because of the tabulator issues that occurred in Maricopa County? No, and I'll restate this as, as about what I said earlier. Not only is there no evidence that that occurred, the evidence that we have and things that we can directly observe suggest uh, conclusively that that did not happen. Okay, let's next discuss the lines at voting centers in Maricopa. What does the data show about wait times in the 2022 general election in Maricopa? Working with the data that the county Produced, It does indicate that there were long wait times, uh, sometimes exceeding an hour and a half or two hours um, at uh, at some vote centers. Do you recall roughly how many vote centers had that sort of a wait time? I would have to look at the report. I think it may have been 7 percent. So uh, but I'm, I'm, I, I don't recall specifically sitting here. Um, can we pull up what's been marked as defendants exhibit two? I'm sorry, exhibit one. And we can turn to page eight. Uh, and we can focus in on the 
paragraph that starts in 2022. Uh, Dr. Mayor, looking at this, does this uh, refresh your recollection about sort of the the specific numbers about reported wait times in Maricopa? Yes. So the 7% uh, reflects the, the, the percentage of vote centers that had maximum wait times of over an hour. Uh, and that nearly three quarters or 72% reported a maximum wait time of, uh, 30 minutes or less. What's your understanding of how Maricopa County measured the vote times? My recollection is that the process was described in the 2022 uh, election plan that they were monitoring the number of voters who were checking in over time at vote centers, and then uh, were uh, actually counting the number of people waiting in line uh, at regular intervals. I think it was 15 minutes. Have you heard testimony um, today or yesterday that the vote times reported by Maricopa were inaccurate? Yes. And what's your understanding of the kind of evidence that forms the basis for that testimony? So my understanding is that some of the evidence comes from uh, declarations or affidavits that were submitted by people who were in uh, vote centers uh, and also uh, the uh, testimony of Mr. Uh, Sonclar uh, yesterday afternoon when he testified that he observed and other people who told him that they observed uh, long wait times at more vote centers than what the county data reported. And based on your experience, how does that kind of um, sort of self-reporting or, or one-off statements, how does that compare to the type of systematic monitoring that you described that Maricopa did? Well, one of the things that uh, we know, and this is research that I've been involved with, is that uh, estimating or, or calculating voter wait times is not a completely straightforward process. You can't just look at uh, a line uh, by itself and estimate uh, the line or the wait time from looking at a line. Uh, you have to go through a systematic process of looking at, uh, at, at the throughput or the, the number of people that, in this case, a vote center can process in a given amount of time. Uh, and you have to do it regularly. Uh, and the research that I was involved with in 2016, we had uh, people observing polling places at precincts and uh, locations all over the country. And we trained the observers that the, the way that you estimate the vote time and processing time is that you have to systematically pick every fourth, every eighth, some regular number of voters. You have to is that you have to systematically pick every fourth, every eighth, some regular number of voters. You have to count the number of people waiting in line. You have to time it with a, with a stopwatch or a, a, a digital timer on a phone or a watch. Uh, it's not something that you can uh, that you can estimate by just kind of eyeballing it. It needs to be systematic. And my conclusion from comparing the way that the county estimated vote times in those self-reports, um, that my conclusion is that 
that the, the the county method is likely to have been more reliable than the than the self reports. Are there any issues with self reporting specifically that can affect how reliable those sorts of estimates are? Yes, there's actually a long literature, not just on uh, line length and wait time uh, uh, for elections, but this is something that businesses are are concerned about. Uh, one of the things that research shows is that even someone's perception of how long they have been waiting in line is frequently not accurate and it can be, it can be affected by their frustration and expectations. Someone may feel or report that they've been waiting in line longer than they actually have when it conflicts with their, what they think ought to have, have happened. So there are a lot of ways in which, uh, non-systematic or impressionistic reports of wait times uh, can be less accurate than systematic uh, evaluation or estimation or, or calculation of wait times. And you mentioned that you reviewed some of the declarations that were submitted in this um, alongside the complaint. Was there any evidence in those complaints of sort of this unreliability or variation from the self-reporting that you saw? One of the things that I noticed in those reports is that were there were very, very wide variation in reports of the number of people who were waiting in line and how that correlated with wait times. There were some reports that said that the uh, uh, someone at the vote center counted the line of 35 to 100 people with a wait time of an hour, an hour and a half. Other reports that a line was 500 people long and with an hour wait time. People were giving ranges of line lengths from 250 to 500, 35 to 100, 100 to 250. There's a, there's lots of variation. And again, you can count the number of people in line, but it actually is, it's more difficult to do that when you're just kind of uh, estimating it. So there was, wide variation in the reports of line length uh, and wide variation in how line length uh, was uh, the claims that a particular line length led to a particular wait time. Thank you. So um, now I'd like to move on to um, Mr. Barris and the testimony that was given this morning and the report that you, re- that you reviewed. Um, Let's start with the conclusion or the opinion that the tabulator issues at vote centers disenfranchised enough voters to affect the outcome of the election. Do you agree with that conclusion? No, absolutely not. There's there's absolutely no evidence uh, to support that conclusion. Okay, and we can we can sort of break it down and go through each piece of it. So let's start with. Um, the poll that Mr. Barris conducted and that he described this morning. In your opinion, does that exit poll support Mr. Barris's conclusion? Not at all. What are some of the issues that you found with that poll? So as I uh, listened to Mr. Barris's testimony, uh, the and virtually the entirety of his conclusion rests on the inference that because people in his 
exit poll uh, because people who said they were going to vote didn't respond to his poll, that he is making the assumption that every one of those people uh, who didn't respond to his poll uh, tried to vote or didn't vote because they were disenfranchised, that he's essentially taking that non-response rate and he's assuming that every person in his poll uh, who didn't actually respond to his poll didn't vote because of tabulator problems. Um, and there are about five logical leaps uh, that you have to go through to get from that premise to the conclusion. Uh, and th- there's just no evidence to support that contention. It's just a series of assumptions and speculation. Can you give some of the examples of other reasons that somebody might not have ended up responding to that poll? One of the reasons is that people often say they're going to vote when they are not going to, when they don't vote. Uh, there's research from 20 years ago that, that shows that, that when you validate vote records, and again, when you are doing a, uh, an exit poll or you're connecting with the voter uh, or a registrant because of being able to identify in a, them in a voter file, you know who they are and you can follow up and see if they actually voted. Uh, and there's research from uh, sort of the early 2000s that show that, that, that sometimes 25, 30% of people who say they're going to vote uh, actually don't vote. So that's one possibility is that the people who uh, said uh, that they were going to vote uh, didn't vote. Uh, so that's, that's, that's one possibility. Uh, another is that the people who fall into that category, uh, say that they're going to vote and then don't vote. There are all kinds of reasons why the effects might be different for different types of voters. You might have, uh, someone who votes absentee be more likely to respond positively and vote as opposed to someone who is telling you what they might do two or three weeks in the future. There can be a proximity effect where someone who was just asked to participate in the poll and agreed to it and they they complete the poll in a couple of days or a week, they might be more likely to uh, uh, eventually respond to the poll uh, and participate when they just voted as opposed to if they're going to vote on election day and that act might be two or three days a week, two weeks, three weeks in the future. So there are all, there are all kinds of reasons why someone might say that they're a likely voter uh, and then not vote or say they're going to participate in the poll and agree to participate in a poll uh, and wind up uh, not participating. Based on your experience, um, if a poll had an unexpected non-response rate, what would that tell you about the poll? Well, the first thing that I would think of, uh, if I had that kind of, uh, uh, differential non-response rate is that I would, I would worry that there was something wrong with the poll, that there was something, something about the sample, something about the selection criteria, something about, uh, 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 who was more likely to respond, whether it's demographics or, uh, age or even partisanship. And I, I think it's worth noting that Mr. Barris has actually presented no data to support uh, any of his contentions. 
neither in his testimony uh, or his report. I, there are no marginals. There are no demographics that break down uh, the people who responded uh, or or didn't respond. Uh, and there are all kinds of reasons why uh, that that might happen. And again, having gone through this process myself, my my initial reaction would be there, there's something going on with my sample. There's something going on with that screen that's not picking up uh, uh, the thing that that uh, I'm trying to measure. Um, in your view. I mean, you heard Mr. Barris's testimony, and he said that the people who ultimately responded to the poll, those are people who voted. Is that your understanding? Or at least self-reported voting, I should say. That's my understanding. These are people who said that they voted. What's your opinion on drawing conclusions about non-voters based on polls of voters? Uh, my conclusion is that you, you shouldn't do it. Uh, when, uh, uh, there, there are polls, there are surveys, large scale surveys. Some of them are done by the, uh, Census Bureau. Some of them are done by, uh, academic centers that actually go into the details of who voted and who didn't vote. And, um, those polls actually have a battery of items for people who, uh, say they didn't vote about why they didn't vote. Uh, and the, the one that I, I refer to uh, is called the survey on the performance of American elections it actually has a, a 13 item battery that goes into why people didn't vote, that they weren't interested. They weren't registered. They, the lines were too long. Uh, it was raining. They had lacked transportation. There are all kinds of reasons, but I, 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 uh, I, I don't think, in, in my view, it's decidedly uh, improper or wrong to make uh, inferences about why people didn't vote by asking questions of people who did vote. Let's um, shift gears a little bit and talk about some of the specific calculations um, that Mr. Barris did. Uh, Mr. Barris gave some testimony about what would happen if overall turnout had been 2.5% higher or some range, some, I guess, undefined range higher. Uh, in your opinion, is there any reasonable basis for Mr. Barris's selection of 2.5% or, or any range? Well, I mean, going by what Mr. Barris said in his report is that he picked 2.5% because that is the number that would generate, in his view, uncertainty about the outcome. There's, there's just no, no basis for that. He's, he's, he's picking that number out of the air. Um, there just is zero basis for speculating that, uh, turnout might have been. And, and, you know, he's presenting this as a what if. But it's not just a what if. He's presenting this as a possible scenario to uh, shed doubt on the the outcome, and there's there's just no basis for for that number. Uh, and there's also a little bit of sleight of hand that he did in doing the calculation because uh, the 2.5 percent he thinks. Well, what if 2.5 percent uh, of voters? Uh, but, you know, turnout overall increased by 2.5%. Uh, 
Well, he's he's assuming that every one of those 2.5 percent would vote like an election day voter. And there, there's just no basis for that. And he wants to say that turnout will go up by 2.5 percent. Well, fine. But those voters, most of them will vote early or absentee. Some of them will vote uh, on election day. You want to speculate the turnout goes up by 2.5 or 5 percent or 10 percent. You would have to assume that those voters would vote like the ones who have already voted. So, uh, uh, you know, not only is there no basis for that 2.5 percent figure, he's doing his math incorrectly about how he thinks those people would vote. So now, so kind of putting aside the the kind of fundamental flaws that you just described with Mr. Barris's process. Can you talk a little bit about the actual calculation he did using that 2.5% um, and any issues that you see with that calculation? Sure. That he, he speculated. So this is, this is all just a, a, a counterfactual that he's making up and asking what would happen if 2.5% more people voted. He's applying that 2.5% to the total number of people who voted in Maricopa County. So he's counting uh, election day voters, uh, early voters, people who dropped off, the, the total number of voters. When what you would have to do, if you were thinking about what a 2.5% election day turnout difference would make, you would have to think about who hasn't voted, taking the population, the registered voters minus the people who have voted absentee, or early, minus the people who voted on election day, minus the people who dropped off their ballots on election day, minus the people who voted provisionally. And that gets you down to about 900,000 voters. And so if he, if he wants to speculate about what a 2.5% turnout increase might be, that's the population that you would have to look at. Uh, so, and again, that's not 39,000, which is his top level result. That's about 21,000 and change. So total election day turnout was about 250,000 people. Um, had there been 39,000 more voters, what sort of increase in election day turnout are we talking about there? Um, that would be about a 16% increase in election day turnout. What, um, just briefly, you know, Mr. Barris, I think used terms like a reasonable degree of mathematical certainty or other phrases like that. Um, what's your, what are your thoughts on those sorts of qualifications or, um, modifiers, I guess? Uh, well, reasonable degree of mathematical certainty is actually a term that has no meaning. It's not something that is used in academic work. Uh, it's something that the National Institutes of Standards and Technology, the federal agency, uh, says you shouldn't use because it doesn't convey any actual meaning. And, and I, I think what Mr. Barris is doing is he's relying on jargon to give a veneer of scientific precision 
uh, to his calculations again that that there's no basis for. So it's 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 a it's a phrase that doesn't have any real meaning. And getting close to the end here, uh, are you familiar with Big Data Poll? Uh, I had not heard of them uh, before my work on this case. Um, it, through your work on this case, what's your uh, general impression of how they're regarded in the polling community? Well, uh, again, uh, 538 gives them uh, a failing grade and excludes them. Um, and again, they they do that because of uh, either lack of transparency about methods, uh, inaccurate methods, or 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 accuracy. So, uh, based on that and the evaluation of the pollsters who are in that group, about 490 pollsters. Uh, based on that, my conclusion is that they are uh, not well regarded by the professional polling community. Okay, and I think last question for you from me. Um, you've already said that you've watched all the testimony given at this trial. Based on everything that you have seen and heard, in your opinion, is there any reason to believe that the tabulator issue on Election Day in Maricopa County prevented or discouraged enough voters sufficient to change the outcome of the election? No. And again, not only is there no reason to think that that, that had happened, the available data suggests conclusively that that did not happen. Thank you, Dr. Mayor. That's all for me. And um, now the plaintiff's counsel will probably ask you some questions. Vice exam, Mr. Olson. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, Mr. Mayor, I have, I have up on the screen your report, which is Defendant's Exhibit Number One, I believe. So I just said, Counsel, I can't see you. <clears throat> Can you see the exhibit, Mr. Mayor? Uh, Dr. Mayor, please. I'm sorry. I apologize. Dr. Mayor, can you see the exhibit, sir? Uh, no, Your Honor, I can't. Okay. Your iPad says low. I don't have an iPad. Oh, that. Can you turn that on or something? I don't know. You're no longer on. Is that it up there? Or is I can see it now. Okay, good. Thank you, sir. All right, Mr. Mayor. Let me read you the first paragraph of your uh, your report. You state, and you drafted this report before you before the uh, court sustained the claim, certain claims in this complaint. Correct. I'm I'm sorry, I don't understand the question. What date did you draft this report? Uh. I believe I submitted this report on Monday the 19th. Did you know that the court had sustained certain claims made in plaintiff's complaint before you submitted this report? No. Okay. So in your report, 
You state in the third paragraph, the allegations are reminiscent of false claims made about the 2020 election in which former President Donald Trump and his supporters made absurd arguments about election fraud in multiple states, including Arizona. As was repeatedly found by federal and state courts all over the country, those claims were based on completely unreliable data and evidence and contorted basic facts about election administration into fanciful conspiracy theories. You see that, sir? Uh, I actually can't see that. In, do you recall uh, making those? Sta- do you recall making that statement in your report? Yes. Okay. So as I said earlier, the court found that uh, two of plaintiffs' claims were sufficiently meritorious to allow them to proceed to this trial. Do you? Is it still your contention that these two claims are absurd, fanciful conspiracy theories? My contention is that the claims that the tabulator problems disenfranchised enough voters to cast the election into doubt are incorrect. Well, you made a number of uh, assumptions or arguments in your report, such as on signature verification as well, didn't you? Yes. Okay. Are you a signature verification expert? No, no I'm sorry. Oh. It's No. My conclusions were based on data on signature rejection rates. Did you ever review the 6,000 examples of mismatched signatures that plaintiffs put forward to the court? Objection, Your Honor. As an exhibit to their complaint? Objection, Your Honor. This is all relating to claims that have been since dismissed from the case. And we're not part of the direct examination or anything that Mr. Mayor has testified to today. Scope of cross isn't going to apply. Relevance. Uh, Your Honor, he uh, submitted this report. He is uh, making a number of of uh, arguments and opinions on issues, and this goes to his bias. So he is castigating all of plaintiff's claims, calling them absurd, calling them conspiracy theories, and he, in fact, has no basis to make any of those arguments, and that's what this shows. Okay, hold on. The report isn't in evidence. Nobody's offered it in evidence, and frankly, it's not coming into evidence, as none of your experts have claims or reports are in evidence. So um, you're the one that's the door wasn't opened for so to speak as to those issues. You're you're addressing credibility yes, Your Honor. by going into the counts that were dismissed. And so uh, I can give you some leeway in, in terms of addressing his opinions as they relate to a baseline for who he is and where he draws his experience from for rendering opinions, but not I, we're not getting into the weeds related to the minute details of why certain yes, claims were dismissed or not. Fair enough? Yes, okay. Thank you, Your Honor. All right, Mr. Mayor, you claim to be an expert in a number of things. I'm curious, as an expert, is it important to rely on uh, relevant data before you render an opinion? Yes. 
And in terms of signature verification, plaintiffs submitted over 5,000 examples of mismatched signatures. Did you review any of that data before you criticized plaintiffs' claims regarding signature verification? My claim was based on the data on signature matching rejection rates in Arizona and in jurisdictions around the country that engage in signature matching. So you didn't, so the answer is no, you did not review that data, correct? That's correct. Did you review any of the sworn testimony of the actual signature reviewers who were reviewing signatures for Maricopa County in the 2022 general election? Objection, Your Honor. Relevance. The data he's referring to is from the 2020 election, which is not before this court. Uh, no, Your Honor, I'm referring to the sworn testimony of signature verifiers for the 2022 general election. And we'll go ahead. I'd moved on from the 5,000 examples. I'm puzzled. I have this look on my face because I read the affidavits and I must have missed those thousands of signatures. The declarations that we submitted, the three from the signature verifiers, testified under oath as to rejection rates that they were performing for 2022 signature verification. Okay. Granted, now with that explanation, I understand what you're asking, but that wasn't what you asked. I, I'll refer to respect. I think if you were talking about, did he review the affidavits of people who reviewed signatures in the 2022 election, you can proceed. Yep. Thank you, sir. Mr. Mayor, did you review the declarations of the three uh, signature verifiers for the 2022 uh, process in Maricopa County? I believe I did. And do you recall those uh, those witnesses testifying to rejection rates uh, that they were performing and observed between 20 and, say, 40 percent? That's what I recall. Okay. Do you think they're lying about that? My conclusion was based on those rejection rates were hundreds of times higher than the actual rejection rates in Maricopa County, Arizona, and jurisdictions around the country that use signature verification. I'm not making a claim about whether or not they're telling the truth or lying. I'm saying that those reported signature verification rates are wildly higher than rates that have that have occurred historically in jurisdictions around the country. Okay, but you've never personally inspected signatures in Maricopa County? That's correct. Are you an expert in in anything related to cyber? I'm not offering a conclusion about anything related to uh, cybersecurity other than the sources that I cite in my report. Did you examine any of the ballots that were used in the 2022 election? No. Are you aware that uh, plaintiffs, uh, cyber expert, examined ballots used in the 2022 election? Uh, That's what he testified to. So you are aware of it? Yes. 
Were you on in Maricopa County on election day? No. So you didn't observe any of the events that occurred on election day? That's correct. You gave some testimony on the reported wait times of Maricopa County. Do you recall that? Yes. What did you do to verify the accuracy of Maricopa County's data? Uh, I relied on the data that was reported uh, by the county. So you did nothing to verify the accuracy of that data, correct? That's correct. Is it fair to say that there can that uh, wait lines at various vote centers could uh, vary in the uh, the rate of movement? I'm, I'm sorry. Can you ask that again? So you can have varying rates of movement within wait lines at different vote center locations, correct? Uh, I'm not quite sure I understand what you mean by rates of movement. Well, the length of time it takes to get through the line. So that can vary, yes. And that can vary for many reasons, correct? That's correct. So, for example, if tabulators at uh, one center were down 80% of the time compared to another center where the tabulators were down maybe 10% of the time. That, that could cause the wait lines, uh, wait times to, to vary, correct? That's correct. And so a variance in wait times wouldn't necessarily just be because of uh, some supposed uh, uh, issues with self-reporting, correct? It's possible, yes. You had some uh, asked some questions about the uh, 2.5% that Mr. Barris referred to in terms of the uh, projected increase in overall turnout. Do you recall that? Well, it wasn't a projected increase. It was a hypothetical increase, but yes. Are you aware that the county in their 2022 general election plan made two forecasting models for turnout on election day? Yes. Okay. And are you aware that the one model projected around, I think, 290,000 as the turnout on election day? Yes. And are you aware that the other model projected somewhere around, I think, 250,000 on election day? Yes. What's the, uh, that's about a, roughly a 40,000 voter difference, correct? That's 290 correct. minus 250. What, what's the percentage on the overall turnout of that 40,000 delta? Approximately. So you're asking what's 40,000 divided by total turnout in Maricopa County? Yes, for 2022. Uh, I mean, I, I, You know, I I I trying to do the math in my head. It's it's looks like it's about three percent, maybe a little bit less than three percent. Okay, so Maricopa's own projections showed a delta of approximately forty thousand voters as having about two and a half three percent impact on overall 
turnout, correct? Well, you're, you're talking about two probabilistic forecasts. But, yes, that's, the difference is about 40,000 between those two forecasts. You testified that it's speculative, uh, speculative to think that uh, Republicans would be disproportionately affected by uh, increased wait times and and what even Supervisor Gates referred to as chaos on Election Day. Is that your testimony? I'm not sure that 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 was my testimony. Uh, I don't, I don't think I said that when I was uh, testifying. Well, did you testify that uh, it was speculative that Republican turnout on Election Day would be affected disproportionately by uh, issues arising on Election Day? With respect to turnout, yes, that's speculative. Would you agree that Republicans turn out on Election Day for the 2022 general election in Maricopa at at least a three to one ratio compared to Democrats? Well, I would I would phrase it differently that of those who turn out on Election Day, uh, those uh, are more likely to be Republicans. I'm not sure if the breakdown in their vote was three to one. Uh, so you but, so you don't know what the ratio is. Well, you could look at it with the the what the vote actually was. Mm-hmm. Do you know what the vote actually was? The ratio uh, between Republicans and Democrats on election day? Specifically with regard to election day turnout, I think yes. it was in the range of seventy percent, but I'm not certain what the precise figure is. So seventy percent favoring Republicans to Democrats? Well, in terms of the vote. You gave some testimony about the reconciliation procedure for check-in versus voting. Do you recall that? Yes. Would that data include uh, voters who simply looked on TV and saw a long line or heard reports on social media about long lines and decided not to go and vote? would it include that data it would not include it would not include that thank you i have no further questions redirect no redirect your honor can we excuse the witness then yes your honor thank you Thank you, Dr. Mayor. That'll conclude your participation. Your excuse, sir. Thank you, Your Honor. Okay. All right. We'll take the noon recess until 1 o'clock. We'll resume at that time. All right.
Ah, <laughs> uh, guys, my boy's just waking up from a nap, so uh, I'm going to give you guys some commentary here. We got an hour-long break, but I kind of got to get Mommy to take little Van here. <laughs> guys, Kurt Olsen just destroyed that witness. Uh, I don't know how, how well you guys were paying attention there because that was a total snore fest. I mean, you got a political science professor as your, as your expert to try to discredit Richard Barris. The guy, like, these, these, um, these supposed experts are supposed to have no bias. Um, I'm, I, <laughs> I mean, clearly this guy is a freaking leftard. They brought this guy onto the stand. And he basically said, there's no evidence whatsoever to support what Richard Barris said at all. It's all speculation. It's all opinion. And in fact, the data contradicts what he said. And what data am I referring to? Uh, I'm referring to the county data. Okay. So, so basically, uh, like, like this expert witness or whatever, he said that the wait times, um, contradict what Richard Barris said based on the county's reporting of the wait time. But however, if you remember, Kurt Olson yesterday proved that the counties were lying about the wait time completely. In fact, I'll repeat this. I said this in the last break. What happened was uh, they were asked, <coughs> they were asked, how do you come up with these wait times? And they said, well, the poll observers working the election at each vote center, they report to us every 15 minutes, and then we take those numbers and update the Secretary of State website and, or the county website. And then Kurt Olson said, okay, well, guess what? We've got poll observers, election workers, you know, these people that you just said that you use to come up with these numbers that say that the numbers that you reported to the website are completely false. And they've testified it and submitted sworn declarations. So this expert today that the county put in on the stand to try to discredit Richard Barris, he cited the county's data and said that that's credible. And that's why Richard Barris is incorrect. So if the judge is really paying attention here, he'll realize that their witness uh, completely his, his argument was a freaking turd. Not to mention, he said. Well, well, the, the county tried to say, um, sir, uh, are you aware that CISA said that this election was safe and secure? Yes. Oh, well, that means it's true. So <laughs> these people, all they do is they appeal to authority. They don't actually provide any information. They don't actually discredit anything. They try to attack the witness. They try to discredit the witness. They try to say, oh, well, you know Mike Lindell. That means that nothing you say is true. I'm not. <laughs> you're lo I, he's looking at me funny. I know. Daddy talks funny. $20. Uh, Robert Robert Walters for 
says for diaper money, have a Merry Christmas, Nick. What did Behizzy want? Oh, Behizzy wanted to tell me that he had an old YouTube channel that was taken down and he appealed it and it, it came back up. But it wasn't his main YouTube channel. It was like Chocolate Superman with a thousand subscribers. But he's trying to tell me we should try to get back on YouTube. And I'm like, man, I just don't want to invest a bunch of time into a new channel just for it to get taken away. I mean, that's like traumatic. I did it seven freaking times. And so I don't know about that. But guys, this this is just going to be people are saying Vance so cute. So I want you to be able to see him. He is a freaking cutie, man. And he's being really good right now. I'm surprised he's sitting in my lap just just chilling. But yeah, Barris, Barris, uh, I believe his evidence held up to cross-examination. The county's witness, not so much. Kurt Olson, dude, like, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not a very, I'm not a very sentimental guy. My emotions usually stay under control. But dude, when I'm watching Kurt Olson cross-examine witnesses, the dude gets me freaking jazzed up, man. I feel like, I feel freaking pumped. Like, so, like I just took a freaking five-hour energy up. You know, I just, I just. I just took a five-hour energy and, and snorted it, you know. The dude is an a, 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 an extremely competent attorney. Not not to mention, I don't know if you guys know this, Kurt Olson is a former Navy SEAL, so he's a badass, and he's a former Trump attorney, and he's Mike Lindell's attorney. So Kurt Olson, dude, um, when you listen to him, it just freaking it just blows my mind. He's so he's so talented as an attorney. He's killing it. He's killing it. I'm feeling very optimistic about this entire thing. Uh, Lisa H8 Phoenix, $10, says, Took us 25 minutes to vote. Three miles from our home in uh, North Phoenix, 7.30 a.m. election day. Ballots rejected for five others and lines stacking up quick. So this was your personal experience. Yeah. So there we there we have somebody right there. Uh, but... 25 minutes to vote. I guess that's not so bad, but you were there at 7, 7.30 a.m. <clears throat> yeah, lines started stacking up. You got there early, and it started stacking up around the time uh, you you voted. Oh, Thomas Cole, $17.76, $20, says, Go Nick, and then posted a link. Um, What's this link here? I'm going to go to the website. I'm not going to pull it up till I see what the, what the heck this is about. We got a link here. I'm going to go to the website, see what you just sent me. Uh, let's see. Carrie Lake versus Hobbs, AZ Governor Race Analysis. Look, you sent me you sent me uh, uh, charts and numbers and stuff like that. I'm not prepared to go over that on the fly. You're going to make me look like a dummy, but I will take a look at it. Van, what are you doing? <laughs> no! He pressed the button to my desk. Van, no! What have you done? Well, he tried to press the button. I had to press it for him. He loves when that happens. No, don't do it again. I'm trying to do a show, son. My boy, what are you doing, dude? <laughs> so, yeah, we got an hour break, ladies and germs. We're just sitting here in the intermission, hanging out, talking about what happened. Again, I'm telling you, I feel very optimistic here. I'm loving it, man. I'm loving it. We're 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 at trial. The deep state is on trial. So this is day two, and remember, we've got Abraham Hamaday 
He did okay. That time he did it himself. <laughs> oh man. <clears throat> okay, now people saw that he has no pants on. Probably, probably judge me as a parent. He just woke up from a nap. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, would you like to say a few words to the camera? Go ahead, say your first words. Huh? Tell the people how you feel. George Soros sucks. Yeah, tell them. Tell them. Come on. Say, let's go, Brandon. (laughs) You know what that means, because you're my boy. Ah, yeah, so I'm gonna, I'm training him to take down the deep state. He's definitely going to, uh, destroy the CCP. I've been indoctrinating him, telling him all the right, teaching him all the right things to hate communism. Yeah. Oh, no, no. He wants to eat my microphone. Hey, you're, you're throwing off my groove, dude. You're throwing off my groove. Look. You're staring into your future, huh? Yeah. One day I'll get. One day this channel, all of this, all of this will be yours, boy. Yep, I'm gonna. I'm just gonna raise him to be a political commentator. You know, have no real life experience and just do this. Ah. Okay. What are you gonna do? Where's your mommy? I think mommy's in in the garage doing a little workout. Ah. So she should be done here soon. So I'm feeling pretty good about this. Lisa apparently agrees with me. We're all feeling pretty good about how this is going. Uh, I think Richard Barris. It look, it, it's real simple. What Richard Barris said. Richard Barris said. I mean, for the last six elections, we do these pre-election uh, polls, and we have people. Um, <clears throat> you know, we asked if they plan to vote. And if they'll commit to doing an exit poll and for the last six elections, 92 or 93 percent of those people that agreed to do the exit poll actually did it. They followed through. And in this election, the people that voted by mail, 93 percent of them uh, followed through and did the exit poll. But for some reason, the election day voters, it was only like 72 percent. So 20 percent didn't follow through and did do the election exit poll. What's going on here? There has to be some sort of variable. And given that we know that all these machines broke down, well, reason would tell you that I think that maybe it was the voter disenfranchisement, right? Maybe it was the freaking long lines. Maybe it was the fact that people uh, were, were essentially watching the news and saw, oh, my God, it looks like a disaster, chaos. I already know the fix is in. I'm not even going to show up. And uh, that's that's obviously what happened. Oh, thank you, guys. Noel, 27, $1. He says if 3,000 people, $1 times 3,000 people, let's do this. Yeah, let's start, a tr- let's start a trend. I like that trend. Expert G says I'll chip in. I like where this is going. Thank you, guys. Oh, $20. Merry Christmas from Sherry. Good to see you, Sherry. And thank you. Merry Christmas. And thank you for... Uh, Thank you for the support. Really appreciate it, guys. Rumble rants. I love them. 
I love them. Okay. And uh, while I got you all here, make sure you click subscribe. You know, I'm trying to build. We're trying to get to twenty five thousand subscribers here on Rumble. I mean, really, we're trying to get to a million subscribers, but we're getting there to the twenty five thousand mark. So let's set that goal first, and then we'll work from there. Uh, let me let me check on my kid real quick because I think I think mom's back inside, but right now he's he's unmonitored. I'll be there. He is. Oh, there he is. Fan. What you got? He's got a kickball. You want to show everybody the kickball? Oh! Um, he found a kickball. So he was just running around with a kickball. Let me see something. Let me see something. Mommy, where you at? Uh, man, during the intermission, got to get mom. Got to get mom to watch the boy. All right, so I'm feeling pretty good, man. Pre- feeling pretty dang good. Hawkeye says, your son has intelligent eyes. Well, given that your name is Hawkeye, I think you would know. This man's an eye expert. She put you on the witness stand. Uh, to be like, look, these people, these, these, these Katie Hobbs, Stephen Richer, I looked at their eyes, I examined them, and the data shows that they're retarded. Okay? So everything that comes out of their mouth is a lie, clearly. And so they should all be put in jail. I'm an eye expert. My name's Hawkeye. Thank you. That's, that, that would be an open and shut case. Yeah. Hobgoblin. Katie Hobgoblin should be put in jail. And Hawkeye knows it. Okay, where's, where's, where's mommy? Mommy. All right. So this is getting, this is getting awkward. I got my boy running around. Let me actually close him in this room at the very least. Hang on one sec. Okay. Okay. Actually, mommy has uh, has van now, so we're good. And now I can just BS with you guys and not be not be a little not be preoccupied. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, I believe that Carrie Lake is going to win. Uh, is going to win unless the judge in this case. Woke up this morning and had like a horse's head in his bed, or or he had like a you know his 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 grandchild's fingers you know in a box show up at his front door. Unless something like that happened, I think the judge can clearly see that we need a new election, not just based on opinion, but based on the statute and based on the court precedent that was set. Remember, I told you that. The court precedent in Arizona says that either you have to prove fraud or you have to prove that gross negligence errors resulted in enough votes being brought into question, into doubt, that it overcomes the margin of victory. And I think that we've done that here, and I keep saying that, and I'll say it again. Yeah, Lake win, then Trump. Wouldn't that be freaking crazy? So Georgia Supreme Court made a recent decision to give uh, voters in Georgia standing in elections. 
Now, if you remember, there was a case with Voter Georgia, the election integrity organization, that was tossed by a lower court for lack of standing. They appealed that decision, and by the time it made it to the Supreme Court in Georgia, they had already given voters standing. So they had to overturn that decision. Now a case is going back to the appellate court for further review. And so that case is back alive again. And the relief that they're seeking, voter GA, is to get an audit of the the physical paper ballots. And that's because we had four seasoned election workers that uh, swore in declarations that they saw pristine ballots that look photocopied. So uh, now I know that there's concern that those ballots no longer exist, but I asked David Cross of Voter GA, and he said that they were given preservation letters and the ballots should still be in existence. So we got a lot of stuff on the horizon, a lot of stuff to be optimistic about, a lot of stuff to be hopeful about. And uh, again, <laughs> not just Carrie Lake's case, but Abraham Hamaday is going to trial. Now, I've talked about Abraham Hamaday's trial quite a bit now, but <clears throat> his I mean, his case should be open and shut. The dude's only got 511 votes to overcome in order to be declared the attorney general. Now, personally, I think that, uh, I just think that either, you know, both Carrie Lake and Abraham Hamaday are going to win in court or neither one of them. I think it would be very unlikely to see Carrie Lake lose and then Abraham Hamaday win. Uh, either they're both going to win or both going to lose, I would think. Uh, but Abraham Hamaday's election is a little bit different. The counts that have been brought into a courtroom. One thing that he's alleging is that these people that were, they went to one vote center and they were told, well, the, the machines were broke down. The lines were long. They were told, okay, well, you can go to another vote center. And so they went to another vote center and they were told that, they were already checked in still to the first one, and therefore, it appears that they've already voted. So these people, they weren't allowed to really cast their ballot. <clears throat> and Abraham Hamaday says, well, if you would actually count those ballots, then you would see that I won. You know? And he's also saying that these ballots that were duplicated, that votes were actually changed during the duplication. <laughs> now that's interesting because what did we look, what did we just learn in this case with Carrie Lake? What we learned, it, it, and this is a working theory that I have. I, I put this out on telegram. It's been shared like 50,000 times. What my theory is, is this is what they did. Okay. When they had 19 inch ballots, or ballot images printed on 20 inch pieces of paper it caused the ballots to jam right now people were told you can put that ballot in door three and then we'll take it to the central tabulation center to be tabulated later now when they took those ballots uh later and they tried to run them through the machines and they didn't work then what they would do is they would duplicate those ballots onto new ballots and the new ballots or 20-inch images on 20-inch pieces of paper, so the machine would actually take it. But here's the problem. Given that we had a lot of ballots that had to be duplicated, 
And given the fact that Maricopa County did not follow the law in properly uh, storing and marking these duplicates, meaning you're supposed to actually, I believe, highlight uh, and you're supposed to have serial numbers that match and they're supposed to be physically stored right next to each other so that you know these are duplicates. And if you ever needed to like do an audit, uh, you would be able to you would be able to match them up easily because they're right next to each other. And they're also marked. But what Maricopa County did was they did not properly mark the original and duplicate, and they did not store them physically next to each other. So there's no way to to actually match up the original with the duplicate. And so what I think that they probably did was change a bunch of boats and then make it so that you can't uh, match them up and figure out that, hey, the original and the duplicate are different. The voter selections do not reflect accurately on the duplicate. You see what I'm saying? So Abraham Hamaday is alleging this, and he's actually requested the seat, uh, the cast vote records as part of discovery, and Maricopa County is refusing to turn that over to him. Or at least they were last time I checked. Holy Holy smokes. I was just looking out the window and I saw my little boy running down the driveway to the towards the street and then mom came and gra- grabbed him. That was scary. Whew. Yeah, so that's what I think. That's my theory and that's not based off of I didn't make that up. It was kind of implied in the hearing yesterday. Because see the county attorney, they were like, "Well, and and dude, I got to say Thomas Liddy, the Maricopa County attorney, is a very competent bullshitter. That guy's a bullshit artist. I mean, I'm 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 impressed with this guy's ability to cover for some deep state ass criminals. Because his line of questioning, I mean, he's so good at trying to um you know, dis, dis, discredit the witnesses and, and poke holes in the theories and stuff like that. But Clay Parikh is another beast, another animal. And he was immune to it. <laughs> Clay Parikh is freaking phenomenal. You can, you can tell he's been in the witness stand many times and he's such a, I can't, I, I can't even, uh, imagine how his brain must work because like me, I'm very much all over the place, you know. He's so structured. He's so rigid. It's it's just so factual, and and he, you know he 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 has the entire system and all the manuals and everything in the back of his mind, like from memory, and he knows the law better than the attorneys. So Thomas Liddy tried to be like, well, so Mister Parikh, the ballots that were uh, rejected, the 19-inch ballots, hypothetically that existed. If they were rejected originally by the machines, then they were duplicated onto 20-inch ballot images, and then those were fed to the tabulators, and those were accepted by the tabulator. Wouldn't you say that those ballots were able to count, and therefore, there's not an issue here? And Kurt Olson popped up and said, wrong. Because... When the ballots were duplicated, they could have changed the votes. And Maricopa County didn't follow the law in properly storing them and matching the serial numbers 
So we have no way of knowing. And I was like, ooh, that's good. Ooh, ooh, that's how they did it. That's how they did it. That's where I came up with that. I was listening to Kurt Olsen. Yeah. Yeah, Carrie Lake has put out on Twitter, like, she said, we caught them all. Yes, we certainly did catch them all. We certainly did catch them all. Now, will it materialize into accountability, a new election? Will Carrie Lake be the governor of, of Arizona? I don't know, man. I don't know. Maybe I'm being naive here. Maybe I'm just uh, over the moon with the fact that we've made it this far. Who knows? But I'm enjoying it, huh? Can I just enjoy it? Can can you let old Nickel Bob Crane here just be happy and bask in it? I mean, we don't get a lot of wins, and it's almost... When it comes to stubborn belly fat, we're all searching for a miracle pill. Generally, you have to use multiple products that target belly fat differently to manage excess weight around the stomach. Some products may focus on abdominal exercises or dietary changes, while others might focus on boosting metabolism or controlling cravings. But believe it or not, I may have found a solution that removes the need for juggling through multiple weight management products. It's called Belly Trim, and it's more effective at targeting belly fat, enhancing metabolism, and promoting a toned midsection better than most weight management products I've seen typically found on store shelves. Tens of thousands of five-star reviews back up the notion that Belly Trim is not only a breakthrough in a bottle, but that it also removes the need for us to use countless diet pills and fat-burning supplements. But there's more. If you place your order for Belly Trim now, you'll also receive 51% off free VIP live health and fitness coaching for life, two free new e-books titled Top 10 Foods That Burn Belly Fat, and Top 10 Exercises to Reduce Belly Fat, a 60-day satisfaction guarantee, and last but not least, free shipping. Simply go to www.trimwithus.com, that's www.trimwithus.com, to take advantage of this limited-time deal before they sell out. Once again, that's www.trimwithus.com, or now. Energy bills are rising at a historic rate, and there's no end in sight. Talk to enough people, and you'll soon realize nearly everyone's shocked at their recent electricity bills. Some studies reveal energy costs have skyrocketed by as high as 60% in as little as two years. That's why tens of thousands are installing this magical little device from SavePowerBills.com to help slash their energy bills. This sophisticated gadget stabilizes electrical currents, reduces dirty electricity, and helps protect your appliances and electronics. Simply plug it into your home's wall outlet to help lower energy consumption and ultimately help reduce your power bills every month. Countless five-star reviews back up the notion that this device is one of the most efficient ways to save money while beating the greedy power companies. But there's more. If you order now, you'll also receive 65% off, fast shipping within the USA, hassle-free returns, and last but not least, a 60-day satisfaction guarantee. Just go to SavePowerBills.com to take advantage of this limited-time deal before they sell out. Once again, that's SavePowerBills.com. Violent crime across the U.S. has skyrocketed. Just recently, a politician was carjacked by three armed attackers outside his home in Washington, D.C. This comes several months after another politician was assaulted in the elevator of her building. Between mass shootings, kidnappings, burglaries, and carjackings, it's never been more vital to learn how to protect yourself. This is why tens of thousands are choosing the Fighter Flare Flashlight. The Fighter Flare Flashlight has awed people with a wonderful design and massive light output. On top of an ultra-bright 800-lumen light, it boasts powerful strobe lighting modes for self-defense, a glass breaking hammer, a built-in power bank, solar-powered recharging, rope cutter, siren, and much more. Countless five-star reviews back up the notion that this flashlight is the latest and greatest in the EDC market. But there's more. If you place your order for the Fighter Flare flashlight now, you'll also receive 66% off, free express shipping, and last but not least, a 100% lifetime guaranteed replacement. Simply go to www.fighterflare.com to take advantage of this limited-time deal before they sell out. www.fighterflare.com. Order now.